On today's show, we are getting to know Steve. But first, a word from today's sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and to start feeling better because you, dear listeners, deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are the greatest asset. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Getting to Know You Pod listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash getting the number two. No, the letter U. It's just like the pod's name. That's betterhelp.com slash getting to know you. The link's in the description. AndrePsyche.com is gone, but Andre Psyche, the man on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, is alive and thriving. You're going to want to follow and message Andre. Why? Because he is the freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up. It's Andre Psyche the next time you're looking to add some creative stimulation to your social media circle. Listeners, listen up. Get 25% off your order at ShadyRays.com by using the promo code GETTING. Use GETTING, G-E-T-T-I-N-G, when checking out to get 25% off on the best sunglasses around. You see, Shady Rays takes extreme pride in their multi-layered lens technology, which is made for high visibility and strength to be shadow-resistant. And with free shipping and a lifetime lost or broken protection warranty, why would you choose any other brand? Go get you a pair, or fuck it too, by going to ShadyRays.com, perusing their polarized sunglasses, and then using the promo code GETTING when you check out to save 25% of your total. Support the Getting to Know You Pod's creative endeavors for as little as $2 a month on our Patreon. Your money will go towards the cost of producing, distributing, and improving the quality of this podcast. Again, you can go to our Patreon, links in the description, and for as little as $2 a month, you, yes you, can have a part in supporting the Getting to Know You Pod's mission of getting to know all sorts of new and interesting people. Two bucks, a little too much? Well, here are three, three ways to help. I don't know why I find that so clever. (laughs) Push the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening to the pod on. Friend or follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Go to Apple. Write a review. Those, dear listeners, will cost you nothing but your time and will mean so much to the pod's growth. And now, Getting to Know You. Hello. Getting to Know You. 
I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And doggone it. My cup of tea. And Steve was a shot in the dark super impulse guest that I texted and was like, absolutely, I'll come on your pod. Steve, thank you so much for coming on, letting people get to know you, man. I so appreciate it. Hey, I am super happy to be here. Yeah, so just backstory on how I messaged you. I'm literally sitting on my couch watching Juno, and I don't know your involvement with the flip phone, the burger phone, the choice of why that phone was in her room. But anyway, the phone, and I'm looking at her room, and I'm like, I wonder who, like, helps create these scenes and these settings. So I start Googling, find your name. Don't know if that is accredited to you exactly, but basically I start Googling, Wikipedia helps me out, find your website, and I'm blown away by all you've done, man. Like you are beyond accomplished thus far in your career. Well, thanks very much. Um, the, the, yeah, so what I do officially is a production designer. Production designers on movies, are in charge of uh, all the visuals that you see on screen um, that then there is a uh, director of photography who actually lights and films. Um, but what the rooms look like, what the furniture looks like, the wallpaper, um, often the lighting sense in any, in any room, uh, in any space, in any outdoor space, or in any fantasy world, the production designer is the guy in charge of making that happen. Um, but I have a team. So the hamburger phone from <laughs> Juno was provided by my prop master based on a very specific stage direction that Diablo Cody, the screenwriter, wrote in the very first script for Juno. Uh, she was really explicit about Juno talking on a hamburger phone that doesn't work very well it, and it made the scene like it just shows yeah. the stupid contrast with the seriousness of the situation it's great writing yeah. and so you 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 can't you can't do better than have it written spelled out right there in the script um and our prop master found found a series of them because you know for a movie you need to have several they don't break um and they were imported from japan Mm. And there was a big deal because we were shooting the movie in Vancouver. This would be about 2007. Um, the whole movie was shot in six in uh, 30 days of prep and 30 days of shooting. Stop. Uh, Are you started, serious? We started uh, uh, the beginning of January and middle of February. We started shooting and we finished the end of March and the whole of that amazing movie, and I'm so proud of it. It's one of the greatest, greatest shows I worked on. Uh, to this day, it's still one of the top, top, you know, sort of things I'm proud of. Um, but we prepped it in 30 days, and we shot it in 30 days. And you know, the movie you just saw it, so it's all about seasons. Yeah, there's a spring, a winter, fall, and a <laughs> summer. And uh, so we had a very tiny budget, a really small budget for the art department. And uh, with that budget, we had to spend a ton of it on uh, fake trees, installing a big giant tree in the front of her yard 
so that we could show fall leaves leafless for winter and spring leaves, which was all leaves that were twisted on by our, by our uh, greensman crew from scene to scene as we went through the movie. Um, we had a whole bunch of fake snow, but nature was this super great partner with us. Uh, we had two days of actual snow in Vancouver that, that winter. And so for two days, uh, they stopped the, the, the original planned scenes. We were going to shoot those two days. And they ran around with four camera crews and shot all the other exteriors they could possibly need for the script um, with real snow, with, with the runners running in real snow. Yeah, right. I was about to say the runner because that's what I'm like. How did you fake that? Yep. Okay. They, 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 they were so smart. The snow started to fall and they blew off the schedule we had for a day and a half <laughs> and lined up this other camera crew and ran all over the place getting these shots. And then the best thing, the best thing, um, the scene right before the end of the movie where Juno is seen riding her bicycle to meet Paul, uh, to meet uh, Bleeker uh, for the final scene where they sing the, the song at the guitars. Yeah, right. Um, the pear trees in Vancouver had just popped into pink pink flowers it was three days before the end of the movie and uh suddenly there was this pink canopy on a few streets over from where we were going to shoot and they they said okay we're putting that bicycle ride on that street with those pink flowers and suddenly we had this like this heavenly pink vibe for the scene before the end that we would never have been able to plan for that just was a gift from nature that's amazing. And the, the ending with the song, so the beginning with the music and the ending with the music, the, the, the music throughout the film is just in, in I don't know, it, you don't want to keep saying insane, you want to sound more intelligent, but it's well, fucking brilliant. insane. It really was. It was it just, brilliant. I mean, I always thought of that movie as a musical. Um, my, my background is theater. I was trained uh, in theater design. I went to Yale Drama School to design sets and costumes for, uh, for stage plays. And uh, my first 10 years in the business was actually not doing movies at all. I, my first 10 years was in New York City, assisting um, the best Broadway designers on sets for big Broadway shows um, okay. and musicals. And only little by little did I get into to, uh, movie drafting. And I can tell you how that, how that happened. But Juno was one of the first chances I got to actually work on what for me was a musical even though it was a film. And that music, Moldy Peach's uh, songs, which was most of the songs that we remember from the movie, um, uh, uh, our, our star, Ellen Page, actually brought that music to Jason Reitman, our director and writer, uh, who, who hadn't heard it before, and immediately slotted it into how it could work in the story. Um, and when Jason, Jason and I had done one little movie before Juno, we had done Thank You for Smoking, which was a very well done movie for a first oh, movie. Oh, that's on that, um, Two-Face, right? It's like a satire? Yeah, yeah. Oh uh, my God, a, I love that movie, man. Yeah, it's a great movie. And that was Jason Reitman's first movie. He wrote and directed that. It was his first movie out of the gate. That thing um, is so good too. Pretty amazing, yeah. And I thought he hated my work and I thought we would never work again. <laughs> and then he came, he sent me the script for Juno and said, read this, this is the funniest thing you've, I've ever read. And I read it and I did not get it. I was not hearing the, the, the one song of it at all. I was not getting it. Uh, and he said, come into the office. I have something to share with you. 
And then he played me about six songs, those multi peachy song, songs, uh, and said, this is how I see this show. Mm. And suddenly there was this whole other sensibility for, for Juno than I was getting just from the written page. Um, and it was, it was hypnotic. Those songs are so powerful and they don't sound like anything else you've heard. And um, they're funny and offbeat and plaintive and, and sort of heartbreaking too. Um, it's the main character. Like the songs yeah. are the yeah. non-personification of her, of Juno. Exactly. There were, there were actually a, few, a couple more songs. There's one scene that we shot that I always loved uh, that was cut from the final movie where uh, Juno is performing at this open mic night and she <laughs> sings two songs about her, her best friends that makes them embarrassed and run out of the room and stuff. It was a really great scene, but I guess it didn't need to be there when, when Jason had the whole movie put together. Um, but yeah, for me, that was this sort of perfect idea of how a movie could go. Um, it was, it was, um, it had an angel out of, on its shoulder the whole time we were shooting it. Uh, and it was just the perfect cast, the most amazing cast. Anything the with right, Jason Bateman, right? A anything with that dude in it, I'm, I'm all in. And Ellen Page yeah. and uh, uh, Michael Seard, uh, Michael, oh, I'm blanking on his name, he's gonna kill oh, me. Oh, I can't say yeah. the end, I, I can't, Michael I can never, Sarah. yeah, pronounce Michael it. Michael Sarah as, as Bleecker, uh, it was just, from top to bottom, the right people, uh, J.K. Simmons as the dad, um, over and over again, they just had the right person in the right place. Uh, and it was just this sort of divine project. Um, and it came out, uh, Jason uh, premiered most of his movies at the Toronto Film Festival. And it came out at Toronto Film Festival and people would nod. And then it got released around December 4th or something of that year. Uh, and it took off like a bullet <laughs> and nobody was expecting this. This was just, you know, Jason's second movie and almost no name, name, you know, performers or anything. And it just took off. I think it made something like 300 million worldwide. Um, it was insane. And it was just this tiny little seven and a half million dollar movie that we made in Vancouver one winter that uh, was just sort of a, a, a love song to everything we liked. I can't believe it. So it's so funny. I, number one, I can't believe it's 30 days prep, 30 days shot. I, I, I don't know why, but it's so hard for me to wrap my head around whatever, an hour and a half, two hour movie. Right. It didn't seem like 30 days would be enough for the various <laughs> scenes and everywhere it goes. Cause you go through an entire pregnancy pre and post. Well, yeah, you know, it's like, true. It's true. Um, I, so, so let me tell you a little bit how the art department works. And actually Juno is a really extreme <laughs> sort of example. So, so I have a team, um, in the art department and there is, uh, uh, basically two hands on one hand is my decorator and under the decorator she has, or he has a whole, uh, crew, uh, coordinator, the dressers, the folks who organize the crew. Um, drivers and so forth, uh, they are in charge of everything the actors sit on, um, use, all the furniture in a room, all the wallpaper, the drapes, the window shades. Um, they are in charge of the mailboxes on the street and the, the benches outside the post office and everything, um, and light fixtures and kitchen appliances and uh, they have a huge amount to contribute to what 
the movie finally looks like. Let's take Juno's bedroom. Every one of those posters yeah. and uh, pieces of fabric. Clothes on the floor. Clothes <laughs> on the floor and the cactuses that were all lined up on the, on the ledge of the window. Um, every drop of that was done by my decorator, um, Shane Vio, who's gone on to these Academy Award winning designs for giant movies. But at the time, uh, he just gave his heart and soul to making these characters sing. So there's there's Shane and his team doing the decorating on this movie. And I can uh, massage it. You know, I can say this scene is about burgundy and gray. This scene is about pink and orange. Um, and and we can sort of find our way with the color schemes. And there's a location process. We're looking for locations for a lot of these rooms. And suddenly here's a location that's all about um, teal wallpaper that's already there. We're not going to take it down. So there's all these other reasons to pick a, a look for a scene. But basically Shane and I were doing the purest version of each character that we could. The most um, um, empathetic kind of evocative story for each character. The other half of the, of the, the other hand, I guess, is my art director and Michael Diner, who's a brilliant um, Canadian art director. I lucked out, got this great guy, who's again, gone on to giant, giant movies. Um, and we had this really tight straitjacket of a budget because it was such a tiny movie. So with Michael, uh, like I said before, half of our time was spent uh, having the green, having the greens team install um, giant fake trees, uh, adding additional uh, greens to sell winter or summer or fall, mm-hmm. um, and then we would just massage with paint the simplest bit of decor or uh, application of planking of wood planking or uh, signage graphics, um, just the needed thing to make each scene pop and work for Jason's staging. So uh, very tight team. There's an art department coordinator. There's a graphics designer. In our case, the graphics designer and the art department coordinator were both the same person. We really lucked out in terms of this tiny uh, indie movie kind of scale. She, When she's waiting on the lawn with the pipe in her mouth on the recliner, and what's it, like a tiger rug in front of her or something? Oh, yeah. Dude, I, I love like that. Like you, it just you don't even need to say anything, and immediately you know exactly who she is as a character. And you won't believe it. I swear to God, that tiger rug was in Diablo Cody's original script. No, oh, it's, okay. It's oh, uh, it gets it's mentioned. so great. It's so great when when it's funny the things that you're picking up the most. That's what's the beauty of it. Is there was an idea in Diablo's mind. And then a bigger idea in Jason Reitman's mind as the director uh, that um, half of the great ideas shouldn't come from me. Half of the great ideas should come from the other the other folks that uh, own this story. So uh, Diablo, um, her first screenplay, <laughs> won an Academy Award for it, but she had a vision. She had a really specific vision. And, you know, the foolishest thing we could do would be to sort of veer away from it and we, unless we had a really good reason not to. Um, same with Jason. Jason had a vision for how people should look, how they should dress, how their hair should be, those, right. those curves, curly bits of hair that came in front of uh, uh, Ellen Page's eyes all during, all during Juno. He had seen, he had an image for that, and that was exactly how the hair designer worked it out. Um, 
and and sometimes even the earliest beginning filmmaker uh, is the one to trust completely because the vision is so strong and it's so specific and you you just want to sort of make that vision come to life and match your ideas into what's already established. So uh, this is a m- might be a stupid number geeky question. When you say seven and a half million dollar budget and then you start talking about all the things that need to be bought, right. is there typically like a standard percentage? So I grew up in restaurants and like food costs, it was like, oh, well, 40% of your overall costs go to food, you know, 50% go to liquor, whatever. Is that a standard when you're making movies? You can assume so much of the budget goes towards art or the setting? You are so smart. Absolutely. 10%. That was the number that I grew up learning. 10% is the number. That's it? So, uh, so for this one, actually, we might have eked out more than 10%. Um, at a $7.5 million budget, we I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. It's a bit of a while ago. But I think we probably spent 50000 for set deck and 70000 Sixty or seventy thousand for the construction, paint, greens on that show. Um, What's it feel like to spend that kind of money? Just, just like within a month, it's like Brewster's millions. You're oh no, like, you're, you're, no, no, no. That's like that's like you have been given five dollar bills and you can't spend them all at once. The that's a teeny tiny budget that is terrifying. As soon as you, I mean, everybody works from lists. As soon as you list, even before you've ever looked for a location or know really what's going to be a build or what's going to be a, a location shoot, you make a list, you get a script. And the first time you read a script, you just read a script. But the second time you go through it and you make a list of every scene, every location that's required, every, every inside and every outside, different people have different ways of making their lists, but there's always going to be even on the simplest indie movie, 50 or 60 or 70 places that, the scriptwriter is requiring, um, and very soon into the process, the direct the producers expect you to put a number after each item on that list. And here's what the here's what the set deck costs are going to be, and here's what the construction paint greens costs are going to be. Uh, and often this happens um, before there's any locations picked, before you really have a tight idea of what your design is, uh, but um, you know, hand in hand with the the right brain side of my job, which is which is feeling out right the the, the, the seeing the seeing the, and the yeah the vibe of each scene and the arc of the movie and all that. The other side of my brain has to be working with the budget, um, and um, some some designers are better at balancing that 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 <laughs> you know two some than others. Um, for me. I, I sort of want to be sure I've got a producer or a director producer as Jason is uh, on the same wavelength uh, on the same wavelength as me. I want to be sure that there's an ally on the money side so that um, they don't feel as though I'm making you know wild random choices about where I want the big money to be spent. I want that to kind of feel like a group a group decision to say, these four anchors are our biggies. We've got to get these things right. These four scenes or sets or um, chunks of the script, those are the biggies. We have to sort of spend our money to make those, everything that the scriptwriter described, everything that the director requires, and we'll find economizing ways on the other, you know, 80% of the movie. 
Um, and I want that producer and the director to be with us on that, on that decision and say, okay, we're all jumping in the same direction. We're all, we're all sort of in this together. Uh, and then when crises arise, as they are always, you know, prone to do, um, they're in it with, with us and they, uh, we together come up with a solution for that crisis. Is there a certain percent of the budget that they just set aside for like, oh shit moments? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> you know, we have had those moments on every movie. I don't think there's a movie that hasn't had those moments. And um, somehow, I don't want to say this is a rule, but somehow the producer finds the, finds the money. And I never really know. I'm I'm not on that level of the sort of, well, because if you knew, you would be budgeting it, right? No, You'd be like, hey, man, I know you got this 20 grand in the back. <laughs> it's true. I mean, everybody budgets with a certain buffer zone. Yeah. And over the three, you know, over the six weeks of Juno or over the, you know, 10 months of prepping on my last Disney movie, Chip and Dale, um, there is an inexorable sort of slide towards uh, the budget's getting tighter and tighter and tighter and the buffer's getting teenier and teenier. And then there's always going to be a crisis. And um, with the crisis, um, it's not my doing. It's not, you know, my bad art director or anything like that. Um, it's something that everybody sees is not what we planned. And oh. somehow, I don't know where the, where they, who the person they go to to get the approval, but somehow there's another bump up to make the budget okay. Um, or sometimes we have to give up something else that we had planned to do that we can no longer afford. But generally speaking, especially because those, those crises are usually late in the shoot, you're halfway through, you've already spent all your monies, there's not really a lot you can get back, and somewhere some other money shows up. When I don't know how that comes along. I don't know how that works, but there, there's like five. There's a pool of interns that are just missing organs. <laughs> I hate <laughs> to think that's true. Laid oh, out somewhere. <laughs> well, so when you say crisis, it's funny because it's almost like the exact opposite of the blessing of the snow, right? Yeah. And in my control freak mind, I'm like, yeah. I could not. I, two minutes into talking to you, I'm like, I could not work in the movie industry. There's just too much <laughs> up in the air. I could not handle all the uncertainty. And I'm curious with the crisis, is it stuff breaking, stuff missing, or is it more like, hey, we've set this scene, but now as we picture it and realize it, and now we have right. this other vision, we need it to feel a different way. Hmm. I'm going to, as I'm answering a question, I'm going to try to think of some dramatic, you know, sort of crisis, like <laughs> a good one would, would really sell the story. But generally speaking, you lose locations. Um, the ongoing oh. thing is you lose locations. Okay. And uh, a, a, an old lady who thought she'd be okay with us coming in and taking over her house decides no, and uh, a new location has to be found. Um, or very frequently, the, the schedule uh, suddenly has to rear up and change radically uh, to accommodate an actor they lose, and they got another actor, you know, picky and stuff like that. And suddenly, your well thought out plan for how the um, calendar was going to look where the crew is going to be to get each set done in the right amount of time is, you know, in shatters and you have to sort of, sort of regroup that way. Um, and is that a, the money wise crisis? Cause now you have to pay people like overtime or you have to now get like different permits or you have stuff like that. Generally, it's, generally you spend money on something and then it sits there for naught because uh, <laughs> what it was planned for is gone. 
we, we build sets and then that scene is cut bef before we get to it. And there's a whole new scene uh, written and we have to build a new set that nobody knew about. Gotcha. Um, those happen, those happen fairly frequently. Um, I'm trying to sort of, uh, try to go to something that's a little bit more, but no, I think that's super interesting. I think, no, I, I think that's super interesting because maybe I'm just a numbers geek again, but like what you were talking about with um, Juno singing the song, making fun of her friends and it gets cut out. I hadn't, spent a bunch of money on it. Yeah. I hadn't even considered the, like a, an entire setting that could be constructed or decorated being like, nope, we don't yeah, even need no, it. I'll tell, you, I'll, I'll tell you a recent example. So I'm really proud of this little movie that nobody, nobody mostly out in the world knows about called Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo wrote and starred in this movie that uh, we shot in 2019 in Mexico. It takes place in uh, Nebraska and Florida. Um, <laughs> I, uh, as it turned out, Mexico is an amazingly great match. Cancun, Mexico is a really good match for the Florida sequences. And the uh, many, many sets were built on stages in Mexico City for the interiors in Nebraska or the interiors in Florida and so forth. Uh, and then we had one week at the end to shoot in Albuquerque to get some exteriors that would be working for the Nebraska exteriors. Um, but it's a lovely movie. It, uh, we shot it in 2019, expected to go into theaters in summer of 2020. And as you can imagine, no movies released in 2020. So uh, our little movie was released, was bumped to 2021. And then to my horror <laughs> was released on, on, um, what's it called? P O V D. Is that right? No. Um, payer viewer on pay view on demand. Oh, or I was reading about that. There, there was, and we don't have to get too far off, but it seemed like that was a big industry thing. Cause I guess you're losing money on ticket sales or if things don't go to the movie theater, yeah, a bunch of uh, these giant movies that actors had predicated their deals on, uh, the the new Black Widow movie and a bunch of others that that the act that the lead actors were getting you know tens of millions of dollars anyway, uh, had predicated their real haul on a percentage of the ticket sales. And when the movies released in the theaters and uh, on HBO Max or whatever yeah. other you know pay per view thing, uh, it cuts into what should have been their their take. And so yes, there's. There's three actresses, really powerful actresses, who are suing Disney right now, which I uh, I applaud them. I am dazzled by the audacity of being able to do that. I, I wish them all the luck because they're right. Um, and my little movie, Barb and Star Goes to Vista Del Mar, was released this past February on pay-per-view. Uh, and um, uh, it generally was sort of loved by the majority of the reviewers who saw it. Got pretty good um, numbers in, you know, on Tomatoes. Uh, but nobody's seen it. The very select few have heard of Barb and Star. Um, anybody listening to your podcast, go look up Barb and Star. It's no longer on pay-per-view. I think you can watch it for um, $3 or something now. or uh, On Amazon and, or somewhere. But I was coming to the, the uh, oh my goodness, the start of this was, you'd ask me. Dramatic, really basically like what makes, what's a crisis situation with the setting where all of a sudden you lose money or you get, your buffer gets shrunk. Right. Can, oh, can, I know. Okay. Um, Nebraska. This is actually, right. I know. So, so we had a very limited budget on Barb and Star, even though we were building big sets in, in an unwieldy place. Mexico, Mexico has 
this the most amazing crew, most amazing talent. Uh, I had a brilliant art department supporting us, brilliant decorator. And um, we made happen for what would have been a pittance in the United States, this very large movie with big sets and big, big effects and big looks. Um, super proud of everything that those teams did. Um, not one, not two, but three of the giant sets that we had worked on in this movie with very limited budgets ended up on the cutting room floor. And um, it was it was it was so hard to see, not just because of the ego of not being able to see our movie with all the you know glorious scenery that we had planned, but um, we had cut you know to the bone so many things in our in our plans in order to make happen. Among other things, these three sets that we were sort of spending a lot of money on. And so then I finally see the movie and I'm really proud of the movie. It looks pretty great, but uh, I want to I want to see the outtakes one day. I want to see those three scenes just to see what it was. <laughs> the extended <laughs> version. <laughs> yeah, the extended version, exactly. And from a budget standpoint, we made a budget that included those giant sets and and what more could we have given the director and other other you know fancy bits in the movie had we not spent this chunk of money on those three scenes that are gone? Um, it's impossible. Every every movie you make, you're going to shoot more than is released in the final film. Every right. single one, um, you kind of hope to God they'll clue you in which are the scenes that are likely to end up on the cutting room floor early, That's so you can sort of give them you know, the more minimal attention than the, than the biggies that you're putting all your, you know, eggs in. That's what I was just wondering. And I wonder literally every sentence you say, my mind goes in six different directions. Cause it, it, I don't know. I'm just super interested in it, but that yeah. was the, but the end thing you just brought up, the conversations and decision-making in my head, like you've read the script. So now you have your vision and then I'm imagining, and I know nothing about movies and I apologize if I mess up titles, oh, but then you would imagine there's a director that kind of has like their vision. And now you incorporate actors who want to present it a certain way. And somehow that has to come together. I hadn't yeah. considered the ego of like, wait, this is my representation. My <laughs> job is to make this look good. And I don't know if this is the best representation of my work. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that kind of dynamic and having to have conversations about right. that. Well, I hope not to make my ego be the sort of pivot around which my my designs are chosen. Um, let me tell you a little about the process of sort of the first few the first few meetings, the things that get the design going. Um, it's instructive. Uh, the very often, not always, but almost always. Um, uh, whether I've heard about a script and, and found, or found a script or my agents found a script or whatever, or if somebody's asked me to read a script for a project they're interested in me for, um, I have a first read of a script and then meet with usually as a twofer, the director and a producer. Um, and sometimes uh, it's a very quick interlude from the script reading to the, to the meeting, in which case, I bring them my old portfolio to show them here's who I am. Here's what I, here's what I've done before. Um, uh, and just talking generalities about what I see for the movie we're looking at. But sometimes there's a lot longer of um, a time span from the time I read the script to the time I meet. And then I can put together a lookbook. And um, oh. the, lately the, the, the industry is such that every meeting expects the production designer to bring a lookbook to show 
you know, the assembled, what his vision for the movie is. And it may not be every set. It may not be, it may not even, it may be very abstract. And I see this as a red movie that turns into a green movie. It might be something like that, but whatever it is, you're bringing them a lot of visuals that they, uh, um, can sort of absorb and you, you can talk with the director about give and take, but you're treading on dangerous ground because you've only been with this project for a week or two or three. The director has been with this project for six months already um, uh, okay. or longer. As he's the writer director, he's been with it a lot longer. Yeah. And so you're, you're already um, before you've had conversation one with the director, you're already sort of positing a bunch of, pictures that could be very pretty but may not match at all what he was seeing and now you're already in an antagonistic situation with uh, a kind of give and take to sort of find out whose who's vision wins out that's the worst way for oh, things to start um, can it get more, offensive or is it open uh, more open because yeah that's another thing I hadn't thought about like you come in and you're like oh yeah the green would be great here and the director immediately is like i fucking wrote it for it to be red how come they exactly. can't see it is it being so so you hope i mean it's different with, with i mean obviously every director is yeah. a different animal from the next one um some directors have a, a lookbook on uh, barb and starts a good example so i met with the producer and and josh greenbaum the director and it was his first feature um and or his first fiction free fiction fiction freak feature um he had done some documentaries uh and he had done a lookbook but he wasn't very proud of his lookbook and that was a great position to be in okay. so then i could come in and some of the things we responded to were very similar and some of the things i was taking him on a whole wild ride of of an idea for how the villain's lair could look that was completely different than the the, the script described and turns out something very exciting that he had never thought of and um they hired me um, there it is. But the next step is the fun step. So the next step, once you're on the job, um, is this wonderful sort of um, sort of uh, unformed sort of creative bubble where everybody gets to sort of find their way. And sometimes that's the most fun on the whole movie. Um, the first thing I've usually done is with my uh, art department help. Um, assemble these mood boards, which are like a lookbook, but um, the mood board. Can I pause uh, you? I'm sorry, just because lookbook sure. is so new to me, I kind of want to picture sure. it. Is this sure. you sketching? Are you collaging? Do you have like a, a computer design that you're? Well, yeah. So, so the first thing to learn about me is I suck at the computer. I can make the computer <laughs> do typewriters. I can make memos, and 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 I can write budgets that aren't really budgets because I don't know how to do uh, Excel. I know how to do <laughs> Word and I can type things out to look like Excel. I am the worst computer person you'll ever meet and I'm always bound to find art department you know, teammates who are great at it so that people don't have to know how bad I am at the computer. But <laughs> I'm old school so um, for, the, for the lookbook I'll do a bunch of tear sheets. I'll collage a bunch of images for each page in an old school portfolio. Sometimes Lately, I've been doing it um, on um, um, a program on a computer. Oh, I do do things on a computer, I realize. Uh, but it's still a collage. And um, basically, I'll, I may do 10 or 20 or 25 pages of 
the different characters' worlds, the the progression of the movie from beginning to end in in broad strokes. Um, a lot of it doesn't look like the movie, but it has the feel. It gotcha. goes through the color palette. It goes to the texture, some lighting effects that speak to me about where I see, you know, the the the, the high points of the movie being, um, and funky stuff, odd graphics, and odd historical photos if they you know speak to the story. Um, so, so that's the lookbook. Is this uh, this sort of abstract collages? And I'm so sorry to cut you off. Um, and it's part of what sucks about zooms. But back in the day, what I'm picturing is you just with stacks and stacks and stacks of like magazines and scissors in your hands and having to like flip through and find the perfect like curtain to go yeah. on a window so or something like that. It can be sometimes it's like that. Fortunately, at this point, I've got 30 years of an yeah, assembled right. uh, library of books, but that's a downside. I mean, I, I have to, you won't believe it, but even for Barb and Star, I took a stack of 20 books to the um, the Staples and spent two hours color Xeroxing page after page after page and then scissoring them, well, chopping, you know, chopping board them. But uh, like you say, sliding them into an arrangement in these clear sleeves in a portfolio. And that's exactly what I did. I brought that portfolio with me to the meeting with Josh and uh, Jonathan, the producer of Barb and Star. And we looked at them together and the advantage of having six images on a page is they may not care about two of them, but four of them spark something. So you're, you're hedging your bets better than just putting one image per page. So I had these sort of collage pages and we kind of find our way for the first meeting. That's before I had the job. I get down to Mexico and the very first thing I do with my art director and then a PA for help is we um, now expand that idea and every single scene or every single location gets one board. Uh, sometimes it takes three or four boards to describe what we really want to do for the villain's lair uh, or for the key the key sets that are going to spend the most time uh, in the script. Can I pause um, you to keep you at a moment? Because this is what I, I want to... I'm very interested in your mind. So let's say, for instance, you walk into a cave, right? right? And like this cave is going to be the lair, right? It, you just get on location. How, like, do you relish that moment at first? Do you see the blank canvas? Does it overwhelm you and give you anxiety? Well, it's funny. Most of my, most of my movies have been primarily location movies. Um, but there's no question the, the sets I'm the most excited about are the things we build on stages. So oh, okay. that lair, for instance, is a great example. That was one of our giant stage builds and it took up three quarters of the biggest stage in Mexico city. And it was, it did have cave walls. In fact, uh, uh, there were sort of cave walls carved out of styrofoam, but my big idea was that there were these waterways uh, the sort of subterranean river and plat, uh, sort of islands of, of black and gold uh, marble slabs floating on these waterways. Uh, oh, cool. And so we actually built this whole um, platform system over a waterway that we, I mean, we filled in all the water uh, at the very end, um, but it was basically this sort of water and we had uh, sort of rock carved faces but then we had this very elaborate interior that was like a james bond movie of um uh burgundy velvet walls that sloped in and had giant maps of the the area of the world that the villainous was most interested in and uh in black with gold lines and and 
um, it, it, it sort of took on a life of its own. Um, I kind of listened, I imagined our villainous listened to Wagnerian operas. And so <laughs> just that one thing alone got me going. And we ended up with this glorious space. And uh, it was all sort of abstract, like a, like a theater set. And uh, you didn't really see the outsides of, the, of the, the extremes of the room, but we had slots in the walls where fire came up. Uh, and, and we were basically playing with the sort of um, fire and earth and water and air as like all the elements sort of like a, like a Wagnerian, you know, superhero kind of would have designed it. So we went, we went extreme, extreme with this, with this great space and people fell over each other when they, when we finally opened the set and had all the lighting working and all the water was moving and all the fire was going and everything. And it was, you know, a billion percent beyond what the, what uh, Kristen Wiig, who was the writer and Annie had ever imagined it. It kind of, it kind of shocked them when, when we sort of revealed the, the big, the big layer set to them. Um, that was a great thing because I could, because it was a stage build and except for the limitation of budget, I could do anything yeah, I right. wanted that Josh liked the idea of Josh, the director, um, had, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. <laughs> um, so that was, that's sort of, that's the bliss of it. That's the, I mean, there is nothing more fun than having, you know, sort of no, no restrictions and saying anything that you can dream up is going to work for this. Um, most of the sets and I love doing them that I've done are, are real places are um, um, a two story house on stage right. uh, or uh, um, a giant office set um, for years before I was a production designer. Um, I was a, an art director. Um, remember the art director is the, the, the left hand of the, of the production designer who's in charge of uh, the sets he, uh, in charge of the building, the construction, the drafting, uh, the, the painting of the sets and then the greens who add all the trees and stuff to the sets. So um, for 20 years, I was that guy. I was the art director um, in charge of building for brilliant designers, these beautiful, beautiful stage builds. Several times we'd build two-story Victorian houses on stage that were so full of character and every molding was chosen to just evoke a certain feeling. Um, beautiful palette, very realistic but absolute joys to, to walk on. You, you came in the stage door and you walked on the set and you were lost in the world of this family and their history and, and the pictures on the walls all meant something. Um, so those things for me are, are the purest form of sort of the most wonderful thing that we do. Most of what we do, at least for the movies I've been on are location driven movies. Um, and, Jason Reitman's movies, and I've done five of Jason's movies, uh, are all location driven. He, till till recently, he had a real aversion to anything built on a soundstage. Um, so I would go off and do these fantastic giant build sets for uh, Sam Raimi, who did all the Spider-Man, the original Spider-Man movies. Um, I did a movie called Drag Me to Hell for Sam Raimi, and we got to do this giant two-story um, crazy Turkish uh, extravaganza of a, of a seance room and stuff. Um, <laughs> and then I would go finish that set, finish that movie for Sam Raimi and come back and do another Jason Reitman movie, which was Up in the Air. Uh, that was the next one we did after Juno. And Up in the Air, 
There was no set, set build on stage. Everything was a real location that we manipulated to become the thing we needed for the, the movie. And that was um, as far from a sort of wonderland as you can get up in the air was the most uh, documentarian movie you can imagine. Uh, George Clooney in charge of a company that basically outsources firing oh, of people all across the country. And so... Um, just airports. You're just airports, airports and boardrooms. Airports, hotels, yeah. um, offices, a whole series of offices because there's this endless litany of him showing up in a company's uh, boardroom and firing a whole bunch right. of people. Um, and uh, it was uniquely a movie where there was almost never a place that any human being had a, had ever put their own effect on. Uh, well, they were all corporate was... spaces. So there were no personal houses. There were no personal, uh, he has an apartment. I was going to say his condo even mirrors yeah. that, right? Like there's nothing to it. Cause exactly. the dude there was lives nothing in the suitcase. in that condo. We, 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 we dressed it with a bunch of stuff and then we started pulling everything out. <laughs> so we had a minimal one sad, you know, suitcase and one sad uh, TV in a corner and not even chairs to sit on. Uh, and that was perfect for that movie, but that's an indication of, of, of the one extreme of movie making, which only relied on locations. And we were for the most part, we went all over, but for the most part, we shot during the winter. Uh, I think it was the winter after Juno actually uh, in St. Louis which is a very depressing place to be in the winter uh, and in deliberately, you know, um, soul killing spaces one after the other, after the other. So um, we, uh, we did a job that I'm really proud of. It was, it's a, it was a movie nominated for a bunch of uh, awards, um, obviously Academy Awards. And I was nominated for the design of it, which was a very farsighted thing to the, my uh, guild, which is the art director's guild, those awards within our within our own body each each year for our version of the best uh, the best design for TV of this of all different categories and the best feature films in three different categories and commercials and so forth um, and the art director guild actually nominated me for for up in the air uh, that year for best contemporary movie which I really I I am so humbled by um, but it was also funny to me because it was the movie in which I had built the least and <laughs> done everything to avoid anybody realizing a production designer was involved in the movie. Yeah. You know, there was no, there was every effort to take away a strong talk of palette, a strong visual arc from beginning to end of the movie. I mean, there were subtle things we did in that movie, but all of it was on the sort of subtlest of nuances. So we would be, the art department would be invisible as could be uh, and let the reality of it sort of, carry the story bleak um it worked i mean it adds to it it's just bleak yeah right? it, it's very strong lonely desolate it's, it's it, it <laughs> when the movie hit um and and everybody noticed it i was terrified that i was only going to get offers for for up in the airs for the rest of my career and i'm really glad to say that didn't happen <laughs> um i applaud jason for making that movie i applaud the people all involved with it but god help me if i had to do one more soulless office again it's it, it 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 was not it's not the thing that that i want to have a whole series of features uh feel like um yeah that's, I've gotten, yeah oh no i'm sorry and god i'm i'm terrible at cutting off. i'm trying no. to get better at when you're telling your stories but i'm super curious yeah what so you're in the fifth office that 
this new company's people are getting right. fired in. Yeah. Are you like mentally trying to figure out, oh, we can put the office plant here. Maybe we'll go with a square table here because we did a round table the last two. In a sense, it's like that. We had – so when I when I got that script, it was really hard to understand the script because the movie, when it came out, had um, a whole bunch of names of, of cities in, added, edited in to tell you when you're in what city. Um, it wasn't like that in the original script. Nobody knew where we were for most of the, the cities. Um, and a few of them, Jason deigned to give us information on. There was one, there was a, ser- a sequence that actually happened that was meant to be St. Louis, where we actually saw the arch out the window in the, of the location we were in. And it was like, okay, great. We can sell the St. Louis ball team and a whole bunch of things and say, this is what the people in that office care about. Here are the sports teams they love. Um, we could actually be specific for most of them, um, we didn't have that information. But what we did have was <laughs> firing company number one, firing company number two, firing company number three, four, five, six. Uh, and for each of them, we laid out a chart. And the only thing we were sure we had to do was keep them distinct from each other. Um, we had to lead the audience by the hand um, to be clear where they were um, in the story from one scene to the next. And, if, and so um, we used. Um, palette in a very subtle way but each uh, firing company had a very specific palette um, and when we had enough scenes we could actually lay out um, the plant life and that's that's town and the 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 upholstery on the chairs was was really key each <laughs> step along the way um, so but we knew actually we knew that the very first firing company was in a Arizona place and so we we leaned really heavily into the southwest pottery uh, story and the colors of the Southwest pottery sort of informed all of the things we did for that very first firing company that I um, uh, oh, can't think of the name of the actor, but anyway, uh, but from then on, we were a little bit at sea. We knew the last firing company was going to be in Detroit and um, we actually shot a couple of sequences, uh, three days of shooting, mostly at the Detroit airport, but we had a specific idea that the very final firing company was in Detroit in the winter with the snow which was fake snow that was <laughs> set up in a parking lot in St. Louis. But uh, anyway, we had that information to at least structure a few anchors on. And then we simply charted them all out and said, well, we've never done an upscale office. So this one is going to be this deluxe um, 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 uh, uh, wall, wall dados and moldings and, and upscale furniture and fabulous floral arrangements. Um, and we'll call that the lawyer's office in whatever company in whatever town. Uh, and we had never done one that was um, gray. And so we let one of them be all about gray and checkerboard, black and white and stuff. So we found we found ways to sort of set them apart. Um, and you never really know when the movie's edited together if the, <laughs> if that floor that you've designed your whole scene around is actually going to show up in the cut oh, in the final geez. movie and sort of clue in the 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 whole color scheme that you planned for may or may not even show up when the movie's edited together. And then like, so you get the script and it's like, dude is going to thrash this office or dude is going to slam chair. Do you, do you then have to pick like, you know, so if I'm angry and getting fired, what kind of chair would (laughs) be best to Uh, slam? Like, how do you go through that thought process? Yeah, those things happen. Um, Those things are usually the easiest part to, to work out. Uh, Um, the, there's always a way to, I mean, whatever your design choice is, there's always a way to make six of them 
standing by. So whatever action was planned, if you had that information, more likely um, the the director figures that out the morning of and says, okay, I want to actually slam this, this glass tabletop um, for the scene that we didn't know we were slamming. Can we make, you know, <laughs> six six pieces of candy glass in time for the the movie or or can we do it in a way that you know cuts away from it or something um if you have the information early on then it's easy yeah. then you audition all your choices with the director and with the stunt guy and they say you know this needs to be a little bit taller whatever super easy it's 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 the uh, improvisation you know at the 11th hour that's a lot harder and and uh somebody's going to be compromised it may, be, it may be the design isn't what you wanted it to be so that the stunt works or it may be that the director didn't get, doesn't get the shot of the thing actually smashing into smithereens uh, <laughs> the way he wanted, unless that's an insert done you know, down the road in the shoot. Um, but there's always, there's always a way to make those things happen. You just have to sort of agree on what, what's okay to give up. <laughs> gotcha. um, yeah. Stuntmen, something else I didn't even think about. Do stuntmen yell at you because you don't set a scene up right, or is there like ever? No, most of those things we know well in advance, and um, there's there's a lot of people that are thinking about it at the same time. And right at the very beginning of of sort of figuring out what is this thing we're doing, um, people sort of know right away where there's a stunt that we got to plan for, where there's a Play glass window, something has to crash through, uh, and those things are rarely um, um, last-minute things. The the uh, stunt guys are usually, you know, set up with a, a series of gags that they want that the that the script is requiring, and they spend a month or several weeks with their stunt team and temp pieces, uh, videoing endless versions of the explosion or endless versions of the car spinning up into the air, endless versions of, of something, of an actor crashing into a hard surface and it's shattering. Um, so those things are never, are almost never uh, improv. Those are, those are things that we plan and everybody figures it out. And in our budget for the very, you know, as soon as we know about it, the budget, our budget reflects, here's, these are these six duplicates of the glass table that has to break okay. and stuff. Gotcha. Those things are figured out. Um, so, oh, so we, I've hi been hired for the job. I've met my art department or I've started to hire the art department. The first thing I set up to do with them is these mood boards. And mood boards, like I said, are like a bigger version of the lookbook where each, there's probably 50 or 60 or more of these 20 inch by 30 inch boards. Okay. Nowadays, we're doing that a lot more on the computer where we assemble an image and then print it big because there's still a great advantage to being able to take a public space at the art, at the production office and bam, 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 surround the, yeah. the walls with your story visually of the movie. And it can be um, uh, location pictures as they get to be known. It can be the abstract stuff. It's, it sort of feels like this kind of color and that kind of lighting. It can be uh, research. Lots of, I mean, any period movie is going to be a wash in research uh, images, photos, video uh, images of, of uh, paintings. If that's a key, you know, aspect of your inspiration, so you get to fill these walls with these images. And as you learn more, as the set decorator starts to shop for real furniture, uh, those images get collaged in as well, until you have a story that any 
producer at Disney, for instance, which is a very common thing, can be invited up to the production office and the production designer gives the Disney executive a great tour of what the movie is going to look like from beginning to middle to end. Here's all the scenes. Here's set designs as they've gotten to sort of be achieved. Um, here's beautiful illustrations. Anyway, you get this, you get the story of the movie. Can I, and I'm sorry, but I'm again, so interested. Is there an example of a pitch of a scene or setting that you're fond of familiar with can share where like an executive comes up and you're like the, the layer, and how would you explain the layer, or is that a stupid question to be asking? Um, well, let's see. That one was unique because the <laughs> Lionsgate was the producers on Barb and Star, but and they're based in Los Angeles. But we were actually prepping the whole movie in Mexico, um, shooting it in Mexico for the most part, and um, so I didn't have that kind of um, I didn't have that grand show and tell on Barb and Star. But I'll give you a better example. The Muppets, which is one of the movies I'm super pr proud of. Dude, that Muppets movie. I, I, when I saw that you had the Muppets, so again, I have an 11-year-old daughter. And oh, yeah, I, was, I was showing her, like, dude, I'm going to talk to this guy tonight. And she's like, what? I'm like, he did <laughs> the Muppets. And we were looking at some of those pictures in the seat. Like, it, it's it, – it, I, 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 uh, you can't explain it. It's, it's just – it's one of a kind. It's a cartoon that is not a cartoon that's real but yet is a cartoon. Yeah, no, I could I could probably spend an entire podcast just talking about the Muppets. I am so <laughs> proud of that movie, um, and um, partly it's because for me it is a Broadway musical from beginning to end. Um, I mean, there are musical songs and everything, but its essence is a Broadway musical. Its essence is this parallel universe that resees the world in a new way and um, um, just as real a way, but nothing. It's the Exact opposite of up in the air, right. basically. <laughs> yes. So, so, Super and I think dramatic. I did it right after, or there might have been a movie in between. But basically, the Muppets movie was my revenge for having had to sit through doing up in the air. Um, <laughs> All that pent up creativity just got out. <laughs> so, I, I came, I met the director James Bobin, brilliant guy, British guy who um, hadn't directed any giant movies at that point, but he had this encyclopedic knowledge of all things Muppets. More, I mean, I never did. I never actually did have this, this knowledge that he had of every Muppet episode that ever been filmed, um, every Muppet movie, you know, pre previous stars. Uh, and um, I came to him with the idea that um, that TV show of the Muppets, you know, back in the 70s, um, the pitch was this. Uh, the the producers of the TV show had some, had some guy look at, the real Muppet theater and had built this sad schlocky TV set version of the Muppet theater for that slightly impoverished TV show that they did in the seventies. Now we were going to show the, the movie going public, the real theater. And in my head, the real theater was a fabulous old Broadway theater, hundred years old, filled with ghosts, filled with the memories and, and the sounds and of, of vaudeville and the, the burlesque and everything that had appeared in this mood in this theater up until the Muppets had taken over it. And the great thing about the Muppets movie is it starts in disrepair. So you get to see this horror, this, right. this, this barn of a place with holes in the ceiling that the lights coming down through and everything, uh, get repaired into the glorious real Muppet theater. And for me, that real Muppet theater was a Broadway stage. 
Um, and I'd been at, I'd, I'd worked the first 10 years of my career on Broadway stages. Um, and I knew what they felt like. And I knew, I, I, I knew I was on solid ground living, living there for this movie. Um, and James Bobin, the director thought about it. And he said, yeah, that's, that's the movie I want to do. Um, and I was hired and that was one of those shows where the mood boards kept proliferating. They kept coming up with new scenes. Um, the, the script was very fluid, um, but even every scene was a more exciting scene than the one before. Um, and we had, we had excursions to France in the script that we built on the back lot at Universal. Uh, and, and I mean, everything was, was spectacular from a design standpoint. Um, the budget was, was limiting actually. And we had to, slimmed down a bunch of the, the visions that we had in a few scenes. But um, the, the, that was one of those situations where we had the mood boards uh, and I, uh, we had done a number of sketches of, as the sets had sort of come into being and the sketches were included in the mood boards. And weekly or more often, we had Disney execs and there's a ton of them um, and we were we were set up at the Disney lot, actually uh, prepping that movie. Um, and I would come to work every day and pass the photos of Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins, giant blowups of them working on Mary Poppins down on the ground floor. So I would take the elevator up to our fifth floor offices. So I was in sort of hallowed ground anyway for this. And um, Disney executives would come through and either uh, James Bobin together with me or I by myself would, would sort of narrate the movie with this sort of tour. And it took, you know, 25 minutes to walk all around the room with all these, all these boards. And it was fantastic. And any other department that wanted to understand what we were doing could simply take a tour of the boards in order and know, know where we were headed. Mm -hmm. um, that was true for the director of photography. It was true for the costume designer who really had to meld um, closely with what we were doing. And, uh, it was it was just the way it's supposed to work, and, and and because it was in this public space, the whole team, the production coordinator, the office interns, the 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 dressers and the teamsters, anybody moves through that space could look around the walls and see. Oh, I I sort of see what this is supposed to look like. Um, uniquely, I come out of theater, and in theater, the designer sketches. Um, Uniquely, um, almost no production designers today sketch anymore. Huh. Um, but for me, and you saw on my website, I still do those sketches because for me, that's the way I find my way. That's the way, I, that's why the design comes to happen. Um, so for each of those sketches, I start with a piece of onion skin, this sort of pale yellow uh, trace paper um, that I learned back in Yale Drama School. And um, work up a, a drawing, I do an overlay of trace paper and then ink it with my pen that I use just regular uniball pen to write with. Uh, and then I have ma magic markers, all shades of the rainbow and, and sort of work up a sketch at highlights uh, and present this sketch once it's the way I want it to be to the director and eventually to the rest of the team. And, um, presuming that it's, it's what the director wanted, uh, it goes up on the wall and, or a copy of it. My, I keep the originals, but the copy of it goes up on the wall, the digital image of it. And a uh, little by little, 
you 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 end up with an entire wall of these things uh and you you kind of get a sense you know if you're on the right track because they all fit together they all are telling the same story they're all in the same language uh to tell you the story of this one movie um i just finished a movie in north carolina um that'll come out next year called are you there god it's me margaret and oh, great your book. daughter I was going to say, isn't that Ju not Judy Bloom? Um, yes, Judy Bloom. Okay, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah How old is your daughter? Eleven. Okay, she's got like one year, maybe eleven. The characters in that book are all eleven. Right. They're all eleven, going on I twelve. I can't remember the the plot to the book, but I remember it's, hearing about it. I'm, I, I, I'll just shut up. But it was no, no. It's well, your 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 daughter's just the right age. It's about an eleven year old girl basically having her first kiss, getting her first period, finding out who she is as a, as a person beyond being a, a, a child. A child. Maturing, Just right? Okay. Stopping being a child. Um, it's a great story. Great book. Uh, and apparently every, every uh, girl or woman from the age of 20 to the age of 50 apparently has memorized this book. Yeah, because it's an old book, right? Like, wasn't it written in the 70s? 70s. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I just finished uh designing and we shot um this past uh spring into summer um the movie for that um and it'll come out next year and uh i was coming in late to that show they had to let another designer go and i was coming in with a very short lead time before we were starting to shoot but the one way i knew i would get on the wavelength of this movie was to sketch each scene um, I ended up doing 28 full color sketches uh, in the space of a month or so. Uh, and uh, it was insane. I don't think I've actually done so many sketches in my life at the same time, but it was, it put me on very solid ground because I knew that if it worked in the sketch um, and it was proved by the designer, uh, by the director and, and the producers from a money standpoint, we were in and it, it worked that way. It worked seamlessly. And, uh, by the end, I had this wall behind me, you know, 10 feet high by, by what, 20 feet long, covered with onions in full color sketches of the whole show. And we never had the, ch we never had the chance for a, uh, a team of producers to come strolling in and see the finished sketches. Because by the time I was done the sketches, we were halfway through the shoot. I was just sort of getting them going while the shoot had already begun. But oh, wow. uh, they served the same function, which was um, uh, if they all hang together and they all tell the same story, um, we were the, the movie, the movie would work visually. There was a through line that was working visually. And um, for me, it's the simplest way to tell the decorator. Here's, here's how I feel it should feel. Um, sometimes I would get the, uh, the decorator would already have shopped, shopped uh, wonderful furniture. Here's the bed she really has her heart set on. Here's some wallpaper that we can play with. And so I would, you know, glom onto those things and get the sketch to reflect what the decorator already had in the warehouse, what they always were thinking they'd like to use. Um, other times I was doing sketches to find out what something should look like. But then the decorator would have information. My art director would have information. The painters and the the, the construction guys would all know what the final look of a set was or the final feel of a location is getting turned into um, what the graphics should, should feel like. There were a few, because this was a, a, a movie that took place in 1970, um, 
uh, everything was about graphics. The graphics had to be spot on to that ear to, to look correct. And so a lot of times the graphics were part of the sketches I was doing. They left it in the 70s, huh? They didn't try to modernize it. No, it was great. It awesome. all takes place in 1970 to 71. And um, it's good because, I mean, the contemporary kids' technology is so radically different from what they would have had back then. There was one TV in the living room, right. you know, in 1970. With how many channels, right? Three, maybe? Right. And you had to go up and rotate the knob to get them to be different channels. Um, so, so uh, no, that was actually, it was a project that it was like, I could have really fallen on my face on. Um, but it, it, um, it, it spoke to my strong suits because I lived in the seventies. I was 13 in or 14 in 1970 and, uh, could rely on a whole bunch of memories. And my mom had just decorated a house in 1970 that I had pictures of <laughs> and aunts had, you know, houses that, so I, I sort of knew a lot. Um, I, I lived near where the people were, a bunch of the scenes happened in New York city and I didn't live in New York in 1970, but I did leave, live in New York in 1980 and, and had memories going back to the 70s. So, so uh, I felt on very solid ground. Um, it was a world I felt like I know this world as well as I knew the Muppet world right. when I was doing that show. <laughs> and, and you want a project that feels like you are, you are some kind of expert in that world. Um, or you can catch up really fast. Because um, the details but, have to matter so much. And if you've experienced it, you've seen it, you've looked at it from so many perspectives, I yeah. can't imagine the details, the amount of little hamster wheels that mice ideas are just rolling because you're like, yeah. oh, this lamp. Oh, this window. Oh, that curtain. Yeah. Oh, and, and boom, boom, boom. A billion of those. And, and of course, you depend on your decorator to make great choices and show you the best of what they love. Um, but... but um, yeah, at the beginning, especially, you're you're sort of swinging wildly to try to sort of tame this beast into into pieces that you can sort of say, I know for a fact this is the right choice, and um, you have to sort of strike out a bunch of you know sort of you have to eliminate a lot of choices to get to I know that this choice is the right choice. Um, the Muppets was one of those movies where we were creating whole worlds, almost you know. Uh, um, it was kind of parallel universe, and even even the scenes in Los Angeles become parallel universe. It's a it's a it's a particular version of a beat up Los Angeles in that movie, and all those locations took choosing and um, um, finding, adding the stuff, adding the the ripped drapes, or adding the kind of peeling wallpaper that told the audience the story, um, you know, immediately. Um, and with a clear, clear kind of distinction from one scene to the next. But then we got to do these fantasy things um, on stage um, at the Muppet Theater, and um, oh my God, I was in hog heaven. The 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 whole thing leads to this giant telethon on the Muppet Theater. Trying oh, I to forgot about the telethon. So so <laughs> the 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 big the big sort of climax of the whole movie is this show and. Um, I was waiting all the whole, the whole, the whole design process was just sort of thrilling and fun, but nothing was going to get me more excited than designing the show. And, <laughs> and we got to build our version of the giant, you know, five tiered arch that, that they are marching on in the opening credits. But then we got to do these sets and uh, um, we got to do this, this one sequence, which was the rainbow connection sequence 
um, which was one of the last things we shot in principal photography, where um, the it's just um, Kermit on a, on a blackened stage. It looks like uh, strumming on his banjo, singing Rainbow Connection. Uh, and it turns out he's on a log in a in a in a swamp with the rain coming down. And Miss Piggy floats in in a boat, and they do a duet. And then little by little, it gets wider and wider, and the sun sort of comes up, and these shiny circles of of rainbows of um, uh, a sort of sun rays emanating from the center start start appearing and little by little by little you you the 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 sort of stormy night in the swamp becomes this glorious sunny day um with all of the entire company of, of muppets all singing and dancing um for the end of rainbow connection and we had figured out this thing where um, all the tricks I knew from theater were going to come into play. And we started with this sort of small little circle and uh, a scrim behind. And the scrim is something where if you light the front, you can't see what's behind it. And if you turn off the lights in front and you light behind, suddenly it appears by magic to show up behind. And uh, we had these portals open. Uh, rigged to slide open to make a wider and wider opening. And we had light bulbs around the proscenium that were all going to, they were off to start with. And then at a certain music cue, all the lights were going to fill up from the bottom all the way up on, 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 all the way to the top in this sort of magical 10 second um, cue that bless his heart. James Bobin was right enough to have a, a, mo a camera on a crane, pull wider and wider and wider, so that by the time the thing was all lit up, you saw that whole thing in one in one shot. Um, and every piece of this was a cue that was very complicated to to make happen. Um, the effects team is responsible for moving sets on 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 uh, movie sets, so uh, every gag had to be rehearsed and tried, and lighting had to be fine tuned between lights in front, lights behind. Um, and there were, by that point, there was a cast of sort of 30 Muppets or so singing and dancing by the end of that number. <laughs> and so that's, uh, 30 Muppets is 30 performers, um, with, because every Muppet has a guy in the head of the Muppet plus, uh, one hand is operating one hand of the Muppet. And if you're lucky, there is a neighbor operator who can operate the second hand plus another hand. So it might have been more than 30 performers okay. that were actually doing it by the time they figured it out. But each of these gags was very complicated. And I remember sitting in the movie, in the, in the soundstage. Oh, the Muppet stage was built on stage 28 at Universal, which is no longer there because it's got subsumed with the damn theme park. Uh, it's now a, part of a dark red, I think. But <laughs> what used to be on stage 28 at Universal was the um, 1925 uh, a set from Phantom of the Opera, from the silent movie Phantom of the Opera, this giant sort of uh, kind of version of a, a, a European opera house. Um, there was no proscenium and no stage behind the proscenium at all, but there was the audience. And so we had taken that, uh, we had taken that set. We couldn't, we couldn't tear it down. We couldn't do anything giant to it, but we could add to it and we could paint it. So we, we modified it in huge ways to look like a regular Broadway theater um, added a rake floor with seats. Um, and because they're Muppets, the seats <laughs> had to come out in sections so that the operator 
the operator is always three feet below where the Muppet is. Oh. So if Kermit is standing on the floor, there's an operator three with his feet three feet below Kermit. Um, so the set was worked out in ways where chunks of the platform would all come out and operators could move anywhere in the stage as long as we planned in advance and those chunks of platform were out. Um, oh, but then behind that standing set from Phantom of the Opera, we built the entire proscenium, the entire stage, the backstage, the dressing rooms, Miss Piggy's room. There were um, fly lofts. There was a whole virtual theater back there. Um, but I remember sitting in the seats of the audience when we when they finally got all the cues worked out for Rainbow Connection, and uh, it was it was almost continuous shooting from the beginning of Kermit strumming till the whole chorus. I think there might have been a few cuts, but uh, basically, when they got it all worked out and when the lights all worked and uh, you could they could start playback, and when the first AD calls playback, it's like music to my ears because that's like every movie musical since you know since the talkies started playback is this glorious magic magic incantation and then and then the music starts and the orchestra strings up and there you hear kermit singing um at, which is on playback not actually being sung and i sat back in the audience and this dark stage and there's the light on Kermit and there's Miss Piggy's little boat floating in. And then little by little, the scrims are revealing the scene behind and the portals are opening and those light bulbs suddenly go on and fill the whole frame with light in a magical way all the way to the end. Yeah. And I was just in tears. It was so, it was so the, the scene that I, that I had dreamt of with James and there it was, and it was like I say, it was like one of the last days of our shoot, uh, and it was it was magic time, and it felt like a Broadway musical because in a Broadway musical, there's no stopping and starting. They start the overture and they keep going till the curtain, um, and it was it was just like a magic trick had come to life with everybody's you know contribution and participation that just it just felt like like that's the sweetest it'll ever ever be. Um, one more thing about the Muppets, we came, they, they we finished shooting and uh, about six months later, we came back to do a very big reshoot on the Muppets. Um, if you watch the movie again, the whole opening seven minutes is the sort of growing up story of Walter, the new Muppet and, and uh, Jason Siegel's character, can't remember his name. But Jason Siegel, uh, <laughs> growing done. up as, but yeah. So th there's a whole seven minute sequence of them growing up and being brothers, even though one's a Muppet and one's a human. Um, and it was elaborate. It had, oh, I don't know, six, seven, eight different locations and sets built for it. And then uh, knowing that they were going to have to add all of that in, they added three new musical numbers to the, uh, the Muppet show itself, um, which was great. <laughs> so there was a whole scene with Jack Black in a barber's chair. Uh, and, and so suddenly I had three more chances to sort of do tributes to great old set design styles of the 30s and 40s and 50s. Oh, okay. And um, so we, we put it all on. It all got edited in. It all looks like it's part of the same movie. So, so actually that reshoot is one of the best reshoots I've been on because it, it was just more more candy and more, more, um, you know, sort of Sundays on top of Sundays. Sprinkles on um, sprinkles. <laughs> it was sprinkles. Exactly. And, and, um, 
I mean, it was also a great movie because it got received so well. People loved the movie, continued to love it. And uh, it, it, yeah, I know it inspired the one, the one, um, um, the sequel, which I didn't like at all. It wasn't done by me. So I, I, <laughs> I can e- easily dislike it. Um, but it was done in England and, you know, a whole different team and so forth. Um, and then there was a TV show in the, in the mid teen, you know, 2015 or so, um, which friends of mine worked on a little bit, but it was all contemporary and it didn't have any of the, the sort of, uh, the Muppety world that we created, which was a little bit, um, uh, period, a little bit old school, um, a little bit, um, in, just an enhanced view of the world. Um, and, uh, that was sort of what made that so special. And if you put them up, it's in a, in a, in an actually true real life today world. I don't think, I don't think you get the same, the same juice that we got from our movie. Well, you almost lose the nostalgia effect, right? The, the, the initial so connection where you've seen them, where, where, where they're, where they were created, yeah. their Genesis. Yeah, it's really true. And, and it's funny. I mean, I'm sure they're going to have other Muppet projects. Uh, Disney owns the Muppets now. I mean, at least the, the, Character, so so I'm sure they're going to try to you know amortize the costs of that purchase by putting them in a few more projects. But um, I hope that they find that they realize what their mistakes were and, and find something that actually speaks to that you know um, that childhood, that remembered world of the Muppets. That's what I think a lot of people respond to. And then you also not only would the nostalgia for someone like you a little bit like me the muppets are a little hazy that's like my hazy tv memory yeah. age yeah. right but i would want my daughter to yes. experience it in an authentic way because that's what made them iconic was not just the fact that it's a puppet like sesame street should still look like sesame street it shouldn't yeah, no, be modernized to all of a sudden there's you know mm-hmm. 5g towers all around like it just yeah, wouldn't yeah, no, feel think, right. right wi-fi how does your daughter respond to the Muppets? Cause, cause she's a good example. Yeah. She, so she is more about the humor at yeah. first, like the stupid little yeah. punchlines is oh, what good. she loves. But right, now right. that she's getting older, she's a little more critical about the looks of movies. <laughs> if that <laughs> makes course. sense. And the more cartoonish it is, the, the contrast with the Muppets, the reality, and then it's a real place. But you can see her looking. Sometimes it's like, well, was is that real? Like, was that a green screen? Was that actually created? And that's yeah, right. when she really gets drawn in because she's contemplating the setting sometimes. She'll ask, like, was that really a sewer? Like, that's cool. It is. I mean, I mean, with the, you know, the fact that every other movie in a movie theater now is a, is a superhero movie. Um Exactly. And, and I worked on some. I uh, I worked on the second of the original Spider-Man movies. I was one of the art directors on that movie. That was the Doc Ock. Oh, Tobey Maguire and Doctor Octopus. Toby, yeah, Tobey okay. Maguire, right? That nails which which of all of very many Spider-Man movies it was. Yeah. Tobey Maguire with Doc Ock, which was there's no question the best of that threesome. That was the best of those three <laughs> movies. Um, it was a big, big giant muscular movie. I think I was employed for 18 months on it. Um, and I was just the art director. Uh, my friend was the designer and he was on it for two years. Um, and there is a place in, obviously there's a place in, 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 there's plenty of room in the cinemas for those superhero movies and they really serve a function. And some of them can be magnificent. I mean, I thought Black Panther was pretty spectacular, but um, 
there, there's a, I have a weakness and I hope this doesn't, you know, bone me from getting <laughs> jobs in superhero movies ever again. But if the background is CG and the foreground is CG and the characters have been painted into a CG thing uh, and they're doing some ridiculous CG stunt with, with uh, all the buildings in Fifth Avenue being, you know, shattered to smithereens, yeah. I just go to sleep. I, my, something in my mind tells me that that was not filmed in a, in a, in a film studio in any conventional way. And my mind shuts off. It just doesn't connect. Um, and I find that's, that's, uh, um, I mean, obviously good storytelling can, can override that, but, um, it's just less the, plausible to, to me, like yeah. as a consumer, you're there just to get the entertainment, but you're not there to really get lost in the moment because there's no chance of it. Right. I mean, if there's good dialogue, I'll, I'll attend to that. I'll, yeah. I'll like, I'll, my areas will book up, perk up. And if there's a good punchline or a good witty sort of exchange, oh, that's great. That's, sure. that can certainly be good in a, in a superhero movie as well as a, you know, a Oscar movie. But um, visually, visually, no matter how amazing and comic book surreal it is in the visuals, if it's all in the computer screen, my mind knows it and, and, and just sort of glazes over um, yeah. until there's until until somebody stands in front of a, of, of a of a camera and sort of holds a prop and interacts with the the, the door they go in and out of and then it's like okay thank God I'm that back in something that's real yeah, yeah the only thing I can think of where I'm like and I guess it would be you would know way more than me but something like a nightmare before Christmas. Right. Where it's like that clay. I guess Tim Burton was really uh, kind of famous for that. But then you look at motion stuff. Yeah. yeah, But then you look at something like Edward Scissorhands, where you take that same concept, but make it completely real. Like that, the setting and design on that movie is bonkers. It's spectacular. Um, Yeah. Bo, Bo, blanked on his last name. Bo, Bo Welsh. Brilliant, brilliant production designer designed that movie. And, uh, the, almost everything there is in camera. I mean, obviously the the tricks with the with the um, with the um, hedges being. Oh uh, yeah, right. When it's just yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. But but almost everything else, they found a way to do it in camera. Um, the waterbed scene is just so stupid. It, yeah, and it's why it works. It's like you are so in the story within every minute. Because you believe it's real. you, you With an just, unbelievable yeah. character. Like there's no way that dude is real. It's no way. But it's since it's happening in a real place, yeah, you're immediately like, difference. could someone up a hill be living that way? <laughs> it's just, I mean, I think that's one of the great movies, actually. It's maybe the maybe the best of Tim Burton's great movies. Um, and it's brilliant design. And it's all otherworldly. I mean, even the the... the, the um, subdivision with all the nice. ranch houses every house painted so perfectly and so so well figured out and every piece of greenery um it's i mean it's tim burton is brilliant but the combination of tim burton and bo welch's design was that is that is as good as it ever gets that's just the best it ever gets when you had mentioned spider-man 2 i hadn't thought about this for someone like you or even just in movies in general which again is why I love having people like you on. I just get to think about interesting things and hear what happens. Any kind of pressure on a sequel to maintain what was set up in the first movie, but then still make it your own? Hmm. Um, well, 
it wasn't it wasn't a problem for me because I was com- that was the only movie I did was the second one. <laughs> so oh, no, I was yeah, but I, I guess yeah. I mean like matching the original aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. In fact, there were a bunch of sets that were brought back in from the first one to the second one. Uh, same production designer, Neil Spizak, brilliant production designer, did one, two, and three of the Tobey Maguire uh, Spider-Mans. And so they literally saved a number of the sets that were built for the first one that they knew were, that, that turned out were coming back for the, for the second one. Gosh. But I think Neil instinctively uh, wanted to top what he had done the first time. And uh, there was a conceit, uh, there was just a sense of how operatic and glorious the, the, the movie could be. The first one was great and all, but I think Neil was interested in getting a really over-the-top giant conception for New York City and giant conception for this um, this desolate pier um, with that that wharf building that Doc Ock's lair becomes that collapses into the right. Hudson River and everything. I think Neil deliberately w- wanted to sort of top himself and just just go to some place bigger and scarier and more. Uh, textural and and colorful and everything than he had done the first time. I think he really he really nailed it on the second one. So that the Hudson Pier is is a great example. The the layer. So yeah. that's actually like in a studio, and you guys just like bring in water, or how does that uh, thing get? It's made? funny you should mention that. I hadn't thought of that till this moment, but that may have been where I got the idea for the water in my my little villainous lair. Um, that set, Tom Wilkins was the art director on that set. Brilliant set. Uh, it was built into stage, I want to say stage 30 at Sony. I hope I'm getting the number right because that was Esther Williams' pool back in the day. Esther Williams, the, Esther Williams was this, this 1950s um, star of MGM musicals that all happened with a swimmer as the main character. So there were mermaids and everything else. <laughs> and she would do these incredible stunts with synchronized swimmers in the pool. She'd come up out of these giant fountains into the air and dive back into the pool. So that pool was at stage 30 at at Sony. Um, And that was the stage that we were building that giant set on. So Neil uh, conceived of the set. Elaborate model was built for the set because it was so complicated spatially. But basically he went wall to wall with this, with the interior of this lair and, uh, the floor was a series of these hydraulic lifts of it was supposed to be giant chunks of broken floor. And he, they had, they constructed these giant, Oh, 20, 30, 40 foot long chunks of floor on hydraulic lifts on angles. And they had put in a, um, a sub platform. I don't think they went down to the depth of Esther Williams pool, but they did a sub platform <laughs> and then sealed it with the, with that vinyl that they use. Um, to make a you know watertight seal, and they filled it with water, but very little water. Usually, I mean, the same is true in my Barb and Star set in Mexico. Um, a foot of water is a lot. Uh, a foot of water is usually what's what's used to make those pools work. But as long as you had the water and you had these canted pieces of floor all over the place, and that set had so many different configurations. It starts intact, and then it starts to deteriorate. And over a very long sequence in the movie, it collapses in on itself. And many, many, many of those things were done in camera. Giant pieces falling inward, uh, collapsing over Mary Jane. And Mary Jane climbs out and saves Spidey and so forth. Um, 
Many, many, many of those things were done in camera over the course of weeks with the second unit team. Uh, if it was, if it was with the actual actor playing, uh, you know, with with um, Kirsten Dunst or Tobey Maguire, that was first unit. But otherwise, second unit stunt stunt people uh, uh, with the interactions with all these sets collapsing. Oh, okay. But all of them were on these enormous lifts and enormous rigs from the sky and from the top of the stage, and they had. Uh, several phases for that set um, and the unit would go away and shoot other stuff while they spent a week redressing the set for a further collapse, come in and shoot some more, go away, redress the set for a further collapse uh, and, and, and keep going till the end of the, the movie. I think there was a bunch of CG added to that set. The, the, um, the views outside were all blue screen. So yeah. Right. We, obviously we were inside a soundstage. Uh, other times, other times, movies would opt to put a um, um, a painted drop around the perimeter or a photographic drop around the perimeter. Uh, but in that case, it was it was uh, blue screen. Uh, but then, in addition, um, the connections to to get the set to move from stage B to stage C. Uh, very often, there was a CG element to get everything to sort of morph from one position to another position that the entire set couldn't actually do in camera. But it was a combination of both. Um, that was by far and away the, the most complicated set on that movie. And um, I actually ended up, my, my sets had shot out and I was finished long before they finished <laughs> on that one set. I think that one set was, was days and days and days beyond the rest of the movie. They kept shooting till, that, till all the sequences on that set. We're finished. It was a giant undertaking. Dude, the um, more you keep explaining the little intricacies and details of these sets, the more function. I can't wrap my head around the functionality of taking an abstract idea and a vision, and then actually making it happen on planet Earth. Yeah, <laughs> like it, it's well, and and I mean Spider Man Two. I I think I'm not exaggerating when I say Neil Spizak, the designer, was on it for two years. Um, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit less. Um, but so the writer, um, the writers of the, of that script had written something like Doc Ock's lair collapses into the water, but, uh, nobody really knew what, what it was supposed to look yeah. like or anything and until Neil was on and could start proposing all these abandoned warehouses that still existed for a time on the West side of Manhattan and then a brilliant illustrator, designer in his own right, um, uh, started sketching that set and sketching it from the outside. And it were just pencil drawings, beautiful, beautiful pen, black and white pencil drawings, um, version after version after version as Neil would sort of mold it to what he wanted. And then again, this um, very old school idea, but giant uh, model. It was a one inch to the foot model. It was really big scale compared to what we normally do. Um, and this was, uh, computers were used by that point in, in the art department, but this was not built as a computer computerized set. It was built very old school and all the pieces of the, of those chunks of that, of that warehouse were, were drawn in the old school way, uh, built in a, in the set shop and, and, you know, manhandled by the effects team to sort of rig, to do all the movements they had to do. Um, so that, that was actually, hmm, I think of it, uh, a, a very different technique than the technique for Black Panther, for instance. 
you know, which was just done four, four years ago, maybe three years ago, four yeah. years ago. Uh, and that's, you know, with all the giant machinery that a, that a computer system can, 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 you know, put in front just of you simulate. now. So, so there were, there were sets built. Um, I'm good friends with the designer the, not the designer, but the, uh, the set decorator on it who won an Oscar for his work, Jay Hart. Um, we just had uh, dinner with him four nights ago, um, but <laughs> Uh, he still dressed conventional sets, but an enormous amount of what you saw on the screen was done in a computer with big blue screen uh, performance spaces where the actors worked. Um, and the actors will all tell you that it takes a really specific kind of actor to make that stuff work for them. Many actors don't, uh, there's nothing to respond to in a blue screen yeah. space. And it isn't until the, the magic of the computer, you know, puts it all in afterwards when the actor's no longer on payroll to do the acting. So, so it's, it's a weird disconnect. I'm glad I don't ever have to do. Um, and, uh, and frankly, you walk on those sets that are either, you know, iridescent blue or more often um, this, this ultraviolet green, uh, mostly it's green screen. And it is hideous to spend more than 10 minutes in those spaces. <laughs> it just tears the eyeballs um, and, and God help, I don't know how the, the directors of photography overcome that antipathy to just sort of be able to see the thing in the foreground that they're supposed to light to match, you know, the vision that has nothing to do with green screen. So, um, I, I, I duff my hat to those guys. Um, I had a little taste of that recently. Um, the movie before Are You There, Gotta See Margaret was, um, Chippendale Rescue Rangers live action feature for Disney. Um, I'm not sure if it'll be in, in, in movie theaters or if it'll be Disney plus, you know, online, but, uh, it, uh, it, it certainly isn't a super superhero movie, but it's a real, um, kind of detective story take place in contemporary Los Angeles with Chippendale happening to be the detectives. And the, uh, um, the, the whole, uh, movie is a conceit where, uh, in today's world, Tunes live and breathe and walk amongst us and have their own condominiums, the size for tunes and, and so forth. Who framed Roger Rabbit? That was the first it's one. Very, yes, Love. exactly that aesthetic. Um, but with a lot, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was this great story in 1940. Yeah, right. 1940s old time nostalgic Los Angeles with a film noir thing. And we got a little film noir into it, but um, our director, Akiva Schaefer, was really, really determined to keep this um, being more like um, um, a, uh, a, a a buddy movie, a, a cop movie, uh, uh, um, a movie that was uh, sort of had a Michael Bay aesthetic to it. So it was something that was going to be dangerous and 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 <laughs> and um, jazzy and kind of fast and furious kind of vibe for the which is a very odd thing to combine with chip and dale yeah, right. um and we'll <laughs> see if it works that we we finished shooting that was a movie with uh, the segue was because it had green screen all over it because there's a point where we only had to build the sets on stage where human beings would touch anything and uh we we mapped it out very carefully exactly who was the cast in each scene and which were the scenes being built on stage we sort of knew that early on. And then it was a question of where does the human being amidst all the tunes, 
where does the human being move and touch and where does he sit? Where does he open a door or something in any set? Those had to be built. But everything else and everything the tunes touched did not have to be built in camera. It had to be, we had to figure out the information and give it to the, to the, to the, the computer folks who were actually going to build the, the tune worlds in the computer, but we didn't have to build it on stage. And uh, so there were a number of sets where you'd walk in there and there was that ear, eye searing, you know, day glow green sort of pervading that corner of the stage. Uh, and um, uh, we, we, we got through it with fewer of those than I was, than I was afraid we'd have to do. Uh, thank God we, we actually, we, we built a lot of stuff in camera more than I expected we would. And that made me real happy. I bet. I bet. Dude, it would be so frustrating if you're that hands-on creator to then go virtual. Yeah, well, and and I mean, the production designer's job is to be sure that every single, you know, piece of set dressing, uh, wall choice, um, all the design of those sets that were going to be built by by the, the, um, the team of visual effects artists, in this case in Montreal, I think, um, they had every piece of information as if we had built the set on stage. Uh, it, was, it was a careful ordering of information flowing to yeah, those right. digital artists that that uh, you had to be sure that every piece of set dressing that you would have put in a built set still went to them and where it played and what the textures were and what the colors were, uh, what all the designs of the sets were. Every design, every set was still built the conventional way in a computer in terms of the drafting sent to the the digital artists uh, so i never got to see the finished sets oh, for those are you I, not like I, responsible for it or do I'm you just communicate like through a memo and then it's some other we, person we, we had a kind of a, a ritual for passing off sets once once the design <laughs> was finished in at my end once i had sec selected everything and we'd shown the director in a computer generated version uh here's the set that we've designed here's all the dressing here's all the looks of it if everybody's good with that, we're going to package this off, send it off to the digital artists in Montreal. But uh, only one set was uh, completed enough in, in Montreal to come back for me to weigh in on it while we were shooting the movie. And it was great to see. Okay. I, hadn't, I hadn't seen that level of dust motes in the air and little details that they had added, in, not in terms of the design, but in terms of how the light hit all the surfaces, yeah. how the light hit the the oak texture on the cabinetry in the kitchen or something I just I just so applaud their artistry it was brilliant and it was nothing like those old you know video game versions yeah. of, of you know sets that I'd feared it was it's it's another level it's brilliant it's why those those superhero movies <laughs> that I did, you know have a problem with yeah. look so beautiful in a shimmery sort of way because those artists are brilliant but um, if too much of this Chippendales movie only has those digital sets behind it, I have the same feeling I'd be, you know, my eyes would glaze over that I have with superhero movies. Um, if too much of the screen is filled with a CG product. Dude, I remember that again, not to go back to Roger Rabbit, but to go back to Roger Rabbit. Like I remember and, sitting there as a kid being like, how is that cartoon car actually driving on this real road? And right, the right. merging of it back then, I can't imagine the techno technological strides from, yeah. I don't even know when that movie was, 80-something. 86 right? or something, yeah. yeah. And that movie was brilliant. And and I've seen uh, composites of the the actual, 
photo, photo stills from the actual shooting of that movie to sort of show how if Ra- Roger, who often was the only ca- cartoon in a scene with actors and conventional props and everything, so if Roger you know, slams the door and, and topples a, a pile of pages and, and tips over a, a, a um, umbrella stand and, right. you know, interacts with three other chairs and something, uh, how that happened with all these um, uh, prop, prop people in blue screen suits, because even back then you would use blue screen to sort of comp in or comp out something, um, would be pulling the door and, and, and tipping over the pile of pages and spinning the chair and, and you know, toppling the umbrella stand um, in a sequence that matched what they knew the cartoon animation was going to work out in, right. the, you know, in the final thing. That stuff's brilliant to see then. And, of course, the product is, the, the end product of that movie is, again, one of those high bar movies that we just aspire to. Um, but there were sequences in that movie when as a younger person, I dozed off because mm-hmm. the, you know, you get to Toontown and it's nothing but animation. Oh, yeah, and, with the I, one guy. <laughs> and I just kind of, my eyes, my eyes go there because I know I'm not being engaged by a human being, with you know, touching a book. Yeah. It's just a thing. <laughs> it's interesting, man. It's like a personality thing where other people would like love yeah. the stimulation yeah. of Toontown and the imagination yeah. of it. And, Seems like people like you and I are just way more like critical, realistic almost of the environment. I think it, it might even be an ageist thing. I mean, uh, if I <laughs> I can say it, I guess because I'm the victim of it, but it might be a generational thing um, that that I still need to have you know something tangible and recognizably you know human in the screen to uh, to keep my engagement. <laughs> I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. I've, I've always been curious about this: the the green screen fabric. Uh-huh. Is it special or is it just like a cotton sheet that's dyed yeah, no, green? There's, <laughs> um, there's a bunch of different materials for different uses. Um, uh, the most often used thing is almost like a neoprene. Um, it's it's like, you know, if you had a, um, a wetsuit, it's that kind of material. Okay. Only in, in radiant green. And one reason is because it doesn't wrinkle. So so wrinkles are the enemy of green screen, um, or they used to be. They be I mean, Technology has changed so much; they've become much more forgiving about that stuff. But generally, green screen curtains are, are that neoprene material, um, and uh, very often the floor um, sometimes would be paint. Um, even ten years ago, we would paint the floor that radiant green, and there'd be a cove, you know, a sort of curved surface that would segue up the wall, so you didn't have a line where the floor met the curtain. Nowadays, uh, the way they light them, because it's pumped with a lot of green light as well. Um, the, 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 um, the technology that said, that tells the operator, okay, everything green is going to be replaced with this other image, um, doesn't care so much about the shadows and the, and the wrinkles and the imperfections in that green surface. Um, so lately, uh, it can be messy as can be, as long as they know what the edge is to cut to, they don't care how much computer people just straighten that out, huh? There's some sort of software for that. Yeah, it's gotten infinitely more sophisticated, um, but uh, uh, but there's still always that age-old thing. We had it with the Muppets because um, Kermit is virtually the color of a green screen material, so <laughs> we always had to be cognizant of which scenes had Kermit in them and which scenes had um, um, oh yeah, I'm forgetting um, Gonzo, the blue the blue one, 
the blue fur one, because one could only appear against blue screen and one could only appear against green screen. And we were sort of charting all the way through which characters were going to be seen against the background um, when we were using, because we used, we did use green and blue screen to bunch in the Muppets for only for uh, tight things. Um, there were a lot of, the, on the Muppets, they were determined to have all the Muppet action, including legs and arms and everything, all be in camera. They were determined not to paint in animated legs or animated arms or animated in interactions unless there was no other way Great call. to do it. So for Gonzo to fly through the air, they would have four puppeteers, um, I think. Uh, and, you know, there was the, op the key you know, performer who, who operated his head. And, and then there were operators on each of the limbs, operators on the cape to, to get it all to fly. And they would lay those in against blue screen or green screen so that the element was still done in camera. The performance was still done in camera, um, which kept it feeling like an old Jim Henson yeah, version. Yeah, like a Muppet. Yeah, like a Muppet, yeah. even though you were dropping in the outside of Gonzo's factory that he was flying across the air to the crate yeah, or whatever. That's a great call. And you're so right about it, just maintaining the essence of the movie. Because I couldn't imagine looking at Muppets and then all of a sudden like it's an animated arm. I, I, yeah. It, yeah. It would, you, you would lose, it would just seem cheap. To be honest, I mean, I know they. I I know, especially nowadays, they would do it in a sophisticated way. And I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's ways in each of the succeeding, you know, Muppet things, the Muppet, uh, the the second Muppet movie or the TV show where they probably took choices and and animated them because they were quick and easy to do. But I know on that first Muppet movie, every Muppeteer was committed to, and the director absolutely committed to making it in camera unless it was absolutely physically impossible to do and um they did everything in camera i mean the the joy of watching uh those crates uh, they, they 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 they're sort of like roadie crates from a from a rock concert or something um on wheels the very first time we were introduced to the cast uh and a bunch of us were sort of brought into this this um conference room um and uh I can't remember what the order was, but uh, at first we saw these pieces of felt laying on the on the table, and uh, all the roadie crates that they'd come out of, which were big actually. And then um, one or another Muppeteer, one of the performers, would would slide the felt over to the edge of the table and suddenly turn it into being Miss Piggy or Kermit. Um, and obviously the voice would do a lot, but the that that magic trick to go from a piece of felt laying on the ground to a character that moves and has eye contact and, and evokes emotions and stuff. Every time they did it, every time they did it, it was just like uh, alchemy, like just <laughs> pulling, pulling magic out of the air. Uh, and anytime a, a kid was on set, Oh I my God. Imagine. I mean, the kids, the kids responding, you know, as close as my hand to the kids and, uh, of, of talking to Kermit or talking to Fozzie Bear or something, it was it was just a miracle every single time, uh, and and uh, you would you would um, you would learn sort of Muppet one hundred and one um, the ways to get a Muppet uh, a bunch of six Muppets to go through a revolving door, for instance. 
unbelievable. Um, because to do <laughs> who else in the world has this knowledge? What percent? Exactly. What percent of the exactly. World? <laughs> and 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 because to go and and we were doing a movie that was a lot of it was built on on being on a location, all the different locations in LA, which was very unusual. Muppet movies are almost always done as as complete soundstage movies, but this time we were partly from a budget reason. We were we were damned if we were going we can make it work using locations but it meant that six muppets six muppeteers had to operate on a, a, a low flat gurney platform uh with them contorted into all these positions and each muppeteer has a headband um and a camera a, a portable camera either down by their hip or up by their head so they can see what the camera sees because that's the only way they'll know if they're pointing their their Muppet's eyes in direction to make eye contact with somebody else, uh, or if the hand is going in the right place and so forth. So every Muppeteer has to see a version of the the monitor of what the camera is going to see. And with with this, uh, they're all confined into this thing so that so that the the Muppets themselves are much closer than what six people sitting in a row would be. So the convulsions they had to make to do that laid out on these gurneys that would get rolled from one side of the plaza to the other, whatever it was, um, unbelievably complicated. Um, it was much easier when they were on stage because, um, we had been, we had built all the sets to the specifications, yeah, the three foot drop that, that you were saying, that three foot drop, yeah. and every section of every set would come out in four foot chunks so that, uh, on uh, the night before, usually, James Bobin um, would walk through with the DP and the art department what the staging for the next day would be, and the X they take chalk and XXXXX, and that sixteen you know platform pieces would come out overnight. So the next morning, um, the actors, the performers would come in, and they were still just in street clothes and everything, but they would put the hands on, they would put the 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 you know felt characters on their hands and move into the space. Um, and start rehearsing and throwing out improv lines and stuff. But as soon as they had the felt characters on their hands, the real voices stopped is, is magic. And only the character's voice would start talking. So even when they were sort of chit-chatting about, should I go here? Should I go there? Should I try this joke with you? It was all in the character's voices. It was, they would never not use, you know, the voice of Fozzie Bear or, or Gonzo or something. It was, it was magic, but it was crazy. It was like such a parallel universe. Um, so there was this this giant uh, technological thing to 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 learn to meet up to what those guys who had been doing it for forty years already knew what worked. And uh, um, um, I mean, the best stuff was always when they were let to do. I mean, the script was the script. There was definitely a script, even though there was improv added yeah. to it. But uh, those those performers who had been living with these characters for so many years, um, uh, you had to trust them, and 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 you'd get magic. And so the puppeteers also do the voices or does someone else do the voices for most oh, of the characters? Uh, in, in every case, there was a lead puppeteer for each of the characters. Um, and unfortunately it was past the era of Frank Oz and, and, you know, um, um, Jim Henson, of course, but the character, the character, the, the Kermit had been Kermit for 10, 15 years. Um, several of them had been doing it for many years. Um, one of them, I think Gonzo was the original guy, uh, but uh, for the most part, they, they were all younger guys in their 30s and stuff. Um, uh, <laughs> but, 
uh, yeah, the person who's performing the face is definitely the person who is actually speaking the lines. And that sort of makes sense because then you, then there's, yeah. <laughs> there's an, an hand-eye coordination thing. That, exactly. You know, That's what I couldn't wrap my head around. Like, is the are the lines being pumped in so that then they try to act and match the no. countenance? But that no, would no, be- no. Acted, it was just like actors. It, they, yeah. they, they performed it every single take. Um, and then they could, then they could improvise if there was, if there was an improv line that, that somebody else said, some, everybody else could react and say back. And it was like actors. Which makes Um, the the real life scene, like you're saying, if I'm contorted on a dolly trying to go through a rotating door, but yet now I have to speak and not only act with my hands in this very uncomfortable position, but maintain enough breath and air to sound a certain way. Like, man, what a challenge. Well, that's why the Muppeteers hated the location stuff. <laughs> they lived for the sets done on stages and, and were really yeah. reticent to have so much of the movie be outside on, 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 on rolling platforms where individual actors would move on these rolling little donuts uh, across the, the floors and stuff. Um, they, they got more used to it, but they were really reluctant at first. And um, uh, there was real pushback from the guys who've been doing it for a long time to do anything other than the... Uh, the onstage stuff where they could stand upright to perform. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, why not? Because again, just, it's hard enough for me to maintain good posture sitting here speaking to you so that I'm not like short of breath. Right. What if I have to say three or four sentences in a row? Talk like Miss Piggy. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And then sing. Although the singing, thank God for the singing that was played back. In other words, they, they laid down their tracks for the songs uh, in the studio till they sounded just right and they didn't have to perform uh, uh, the puppeteering while they did while it. So those were, those, that was playback, much like any movie, most musicals are done today where even if it's, you know, um, pick somebody. Uh, um, um, Hugh Jackman? Yeah, Hugh Jackman performing. <laughs> he would still lay down those tracks. And, although actually for Les Mis, the Les Miserables movie, Hugh Jackman had to sing live for each of those takes. But generally, uh, movie musicals for a very long time, the act, the performers would lay down the tracks in a recording studio, and then that would be played back along with the orchestra and so forth uh, on soundstage or booming down the the low, you know the exterior of the 20th Century Fox lot when you know Barbara Streisand is leading the band and Hello Dolly and everything. That's all done with playback. Man, that Les Mis movie, I, I don't know if you had any parts in that. Oh, no, that I didn't. That thing was so well done for a movie to come across. Yes, it was great in many ways. Um, and I'm not a huge fan of Les Mis, the Broadway show, which is heresy to a lot of Broadway. That's the one I've and- seen. That's the single <laughs> Broadway show I've been to, Steve. But I thought the movie was great. And I thought that actually this very controversial thing of having the actors perform those songs live every take yielded some amazing results. And also um, Eve Stewart, who coincidentally designed the second Muppet movie um, that I've spoken ill of, but she did a great job, <laughs> but she was a designer on Les Miserables and she's a, just a brilliant designer. And the design was spectacular. Design actually improved on the, on the, stage musical enough for me to really like the movie more than I expected I would because uh, his design was so great. Yeah. yeah did the, so that the, was a good... I don't know if it's referred to as like the French gutter or the French bar, but where the Frenchmen are battling the army coming in, the poor, right. the poor kids. That, yeah. j- just the way the that scene was set up. 
Yeah, the barricades. The barricades. And that was fantastic. And it was done on it built sets, of course. The the um, um, there were some location things in that movie, but by and large, E. Stewart built versions of the the French the Paris streets where the most of the action took place. Um, but there were some big giant um, scenes outdoors that were not done on stage, and they were they actually transformed giant swaths of, of France into what they needed for that movie. Um, oh, those are the movies to 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 dream to be on. I, I want a couple of those in my resume in ten years when we talk again. That'd be, <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> uh, is is that one? What? Or I should ask why? Why is that one of your uh, hopes? Um, the ever since <laughs> I got into movies, oh, I sort of skipped a piece of the story. Um, I worked for 10 years in, in New York, um, assisting great Broadway designers, doing a little, uh, doing sets on my own off Broadway or in regional theater. And little by little, um, the siren song of the well-paid movie job uh, interf- interfered. I found out that to draft, to do the drafting I was doing on Broadway shows, I could do the same drafting for movie sets and get twice the amount of money. Um, and so, no brainer. From the eighties, I started to draft. I drafted on on the Woody Allen movie Radio Days, which I'm really proud of. Um, got to draft on these great movies, and little by little, by the end of the eighties, um, I was being too well paid in movie land to go back and <laughs> do theater. So um, from you know, nineteen eighty nine on, I became an art director and and rose up in the ranks and eventually became a production designer. I'm doing great things, things I love to do, but if I could change it all, I'd be doing broad, I'd be designing a Broadway musical. That's, that was my dream when I was, you know, 15 years old. And that's still my dream, although it's, you know, it's being changed into, well, I, I'll be designing a movie musical um, of a great Broadway show like Les Mis. So in my in my next five year plan, definitely uh, there are a whole host of movie of Broadway musicals, great ones that are being you know transferred to the to um, movies, and um, there's an appetite for them again, which didn't exist 15 years ago. Um, suddenly, movie musicals are are welcomed and planned for, and people get excited about. So uh, I've got I've got I figure if. 10 good years left in my career, maybe. So that's my plan is, is to sort of get on the wavelength of, of whatever Broadway musical is turning into a movie. Um, it could be that it's just a great period picture. Uh, it doesn't have to be a Broadway musical, but the, the, the excitement of the first AD calling out and saying playback and hearing that orchestra swell, take after take after take, and being able to design a world where it's appropriate to sing songs, that for me is everything. That is, that is the world I want to live in um, as, a, as an artist. Um, there's just, there's just an, um, your, the allowance for what, is a, what something should look like changes immediately when they're singing and dancing. Um, That's what I was wondering. And, I, I was hoping, I'm sorry, but I was hoping you'd elaborate on it when you said like a world that allows singing. That was, so, that was such good wording, man. Like what's different yeah. about the world? There's, there, there's an expectation when everybody speaks dialogue from beginning to end of a movie and it can look like nomad land or it can look like um, up in the air. And it's a very legitimate way to make a movie. Um, 
but there's another kind of movie where um, the the you know having Judy Garland sing you know have yourself a merry little Christmas to have that in a movie means that everybody behaves a little differently. Uh, and if if there's a dance number like you know got a dance from from Bandwagon, uh, everybody or from oh, sorry yeah got a dance from Bandwagon. Everybody in the whole rest of the movie behaves a little differently to make that dance sequence make sense. Um, in American in Paris, there's this incredible ballet that's the that's the sort of glorious third act of the of the movie, and it goes on for like 18 minutes. And it demands that the whole rest of the movie give you a visual world where an 18-minute ballet makes sense. And it involves color, it involves set deck choices, it involves um, living these characters, thinking these characters' lives through in a just slightly more magical way, in a slightly um, uh, more, you can even think of it as a music video way. Right. I mean, music video is a really useful tool for how to describe a tone for a kind of musical theater um, today. And it's perfectly appropriate. There's just brilliant design happening in music video all the time. I mean, look at any of the Beyonce videos of the last two years um, or Lil Nas X. I mean, there's just amazing design work happening there. And those are perfect examples of if somebody's singing or dancing with a team of precision dancers behind her, um, the whole of the movie has to support that in a way that makes sense. And that means you can't have sets like up in the air. It's glorious. <laughs> and it's like, that's, that's, that's a world that, 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 you know, needs to be put on screen. And, and the production designer is a very big part of that. Um, it's not just a small cog in the machine. The production designer has to sort of really lay out a convincing world that people haven't visualized for it to work. Um, it, it, the more you talk about production design and the more I'm learning from you, I, I, and you can please correct this if this analogy would be off, but it feels like the production designer is like the drummer in a band. That's really huh. at like everything. I, I'm super not musical myself, never been in a band, can't play any instruments, but I've always heard, you know, you maintain the rhythm. Everybody else kind of falls in flow <clears throat> With that, uh, with, with that's the drums. Interesting. That's See, and I never played in a band because my instrument was a cello. So I played, okay. I played in an orchestra, but a marching band with a cello is like a really bad idea. <laughs> um, but um, in a way, uh, let's see, what would be a, a, an apt metaphor? Um, um, it might be more like the the keyboards, hmm. the thing that can can cover any sound or like a keyboard organ, you know, a, a electronic keyboard where you can make an imitation of any sound. Cause in a way the production designer has to um, take on a lot of, a, a lot of other people's tones, like a sponge a little bit, but can, can say, um, let's all go on this, this ride together, uh, at least for part of the movie. I think if the production designer leads for the whole movie, that's a real problem. But for the parts of the movie where it's going to go up from a level of five to a level of 11, the production designer can lead everybody and say, here's, here's where we're going. And then we can come back to, you know, a level five or a level eight and, and listen to the actors speaking a beautiful emotional scene. But then we can go back to 11 with 
the introduction of this giant dance number or something. Um, I was going to say the dancing right, right there. It, as you explained it, that's exactly where my mind went because if it, I would assume if the set design takes away from like, say the background dancers, right now all of a sudden, well, that's not my point. So I've got to scale it back. Yeah. That makes right. sense. The key right. Word. Yeah. I, I mean, saying. a good example is the opening scenes in uh, Muppet, the Muppets where you have seven minutes of the growing up years of, 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 Jason Siegel and the character Walter. And then they are finally decided that they're going to pack their bags and they're going to go up to Los Angeles. They're going to meet the Muppets. And suddenly you have this giant musical number where um, they wake up in bed, they're singing, which they hadn't been doing till now. They, they brush their teeth. They're singing, they're packing their, their lunch. Then they step out of their house and suddenly we painted the door of their house bright red. First time we used the color red in the movie. And um, the, the director of photography thought I was doing all sorts of nice things, but he didn't really understand why I painted the door red um, until he saw the movie cut together. And the, uh, the first verse, second verse, while they're brushing their teeth and everything is all dandy and delightful. And then you suddenly cut to the outside of their house on this change of cord and they open the door and slam the door and there's this redness and it's like lurching us into the, the actual chorus of the song and they march down the street and as, everywhere you look, it's all white and red and bright, bright turquoise and bright yellow and the, the signs are recognizable signs of Rexall drugs and stuff, but they're in hyper colors. And you notice that the people are all dressed in sort of slightly period versions of the postman and the and the um, greengrocer and the the guy selling fish at the corner and stuff. And there was a leap that we were in musical comedy land. We were an old MGM musical um, as soon as as soon as they started brushing their teeth and singing. And and each thing we did, each choice of the design team had to support that old MGM musical idea. It was great. It was bliss. And for that moment, the design could come front and center because yeah. it was the story. The story was you were in a world that wasn't real life. You're in this parallel small town USA universe. Uh, and the colors and the period quality of it had to sell that. Then there's a funny thing that happened. Then you cut to the school and you meet um, Amy Amy Adams character and so forth a bunch of side notes and you get back in and and they look back outside and then the chorus starts dancing again um, and uh, it just built and built and built until you realize there's 150 dancers in precision all moving in the same choreography as the camera booms up and at a certain point you don't care about the sets anymore because it's the dancers that are telling yeah. the story. The story is this magnificent world where everything sort of clicks together and they're going to get on a bus and leave this world for what appears to be gritty, grubby Los Angeles. Um, but but at least for, for two or three minutes of that whole sequence, which is a very long sequence, um, the set immediately told the audience the story. That bright red door, those bright white picket fences, um, the crazy colors on the on the graphics and everything, you knew the world. You had you understand immediately this unreal world. You were given the tools to sort of follow the story that way. Yeah. And do you know, like, as you're sitting back or standing back, watching the scene unfold? Do you know, like, are you like 
fucking nailed it. <laughs> um, not, very rarely when I actually see it, there was a moment, you know what, there's a moment when we're doing that opening number with the, with the 150 dancers and stuff. And uh, there's a moment where um, I think uh, Amy Adams had slid, she had these luggage pieces that they, they slid off and it was a stunt where the actor, this special effects guys had pulled the luggage pieces away. And as the camera boomed out um um there's a moment where the the bus pulls up and from the other side the luggage slides back on with walter singing and moving which was this clever little marionette thing they did um and when that slid back in i was like oh it was like you know the choirs on high sang because it was just such a perfect idea the director had and all the choreography supported it and the camera was in just the right place to catch it, and it happened on exactly the beat of the of the you know of the bar of music that it should have, and it was just like, you know, an angel you know sort of tips a triangle, ting, and it was like that. It was just that was just great. And every once in a while, we, we you you look for that, you you hope for that that ting of a triangle right. um, that says you nailed it. Um, so there were a bunch of times on the puppets where I felt like we had nailed it. Another time was that when when Rainbow Connection actually worked, when all, this, all the gags for Rainbow Connection <laughs> opened at the right time, the lights went on the right time, and, and the actors all moved in the same sync, and you just sit back and it's like, that was like 60 seconds of bliss. And and yeah, you, you look for those all the time when you're making movies. Usually you're working with little tiny pieces of film, you know, cuts and cuts and cuts that only the editor gets to see all put together to make that blissful moment. But every once in a while, there's a long enough sequence that you as a creator can sort of sit back and say, bing, that was that, that was what we wanted it to do. That's yeah. such a good point. And that's so hard for people like me who just get to sit back, have no connection or involvement with the production of it. And you just see an hour and a half and you're like, wow. And you're like, ah, that was okay. And it's so <laughs> dismissive of all the work and thought that goes into things. And it's such like a weird arrogance, but I, I to have so much time planning and to see like three seconds and then try to picture something else. And then you're trying to merge all these little like four second clips. Yeah. My yeah. mind would well, fly. And, I mean, I have to credit, you know, the directors and the editors who can actually hold these things in their head yeah. in some sort of way. And they're the ones who have to uh, know what they're doing enough as they shoot to know that the pieces they're making are going to cut together. Um, but also to know that they've got enough coverage, they've got enough angles, they've got they've got the key moment captured at just the right place for the camera to see it, that they know when they sit in the editing room, uh, they've got what they need. I, I, I think they have the much scarier job um, <laughs> to hope as they're shooting that they're getting the pieces. And nowadays, with the advent of computers being what they are, they can assemble stuff. And um, yeah. I mean, I've seen, especially with the special effects heavy sets, um, where editors, uh, where um, visual effects uh, supervisors are comping together the frames with the background, the way it should look, and with the interaction, if it's not being shot in camera, <coughs> that uh, allows the director to see that, yes, he's getting the shots and he's getting them to fit together the way he needs to. Um, it was a brilliant thing, for instance, on the Chippendale movie. Uh, Chippendale uh, running around along the ground uh, is a very tricky science, how fast they run, um, if they have to jump over a, a crack in the sidewalk, what happens to them. 
if people have to walk, how do people know to avoid where Chip and Dale are going to walk because Chip and Dale are going to get inserted in post? Um, and they came up with this notion of this, um, basically a, a, a rope light, um, which is a whole series of little LEDs in a piece of tubing. Oh. And um, they sequenced them. Computer could program any sequence so that they could have the little, they laid out the, the rope lights and any whatever path Chip and Dale were going to take, that's the layout that the rope lights went. And they would be little flashing lights that would travel along that whatever speed the director thought was correct. And they had done a lot of work on this ahead of us working on the show to know how fast they could walk and how, you know, they were 12 inches tall and that therefore their feet could go to a certain speed. And uh, here's, here's what they would look like if they were running. Here's how fast they would look like if they were walking. Yeah. Uh, so they could actually lay these, these movements in lights so that uh, the camera would know how to follow them. The camera would know how to dolly across and know what it was following depth-wise and that act extras crossing on the sidewalk uh, could sort of cross plausibly. And if they needed to react to Chippendale zooming under their feet or something, there was the, the cue for them to react, to make a reaction to it. Um, I'd never seen that before. That was, that was sort of a genius sort of uh, um, retrofit to sort of how to, how to get something in camera that wasn't in camera. My daughter has those lights and they boom, they go to the music. They're like yeah. UV oh, lights. Yeah. Like that's what I'm picturing. Like, I'm like, look at what, like we bought those for 20 bucks. And like when yeah, she plays exactly. Taylor Swift, it's just really cool that the ombre uh -huh. goes from like whatever, pink to red to orange to yellow. And that concept being used in a movie to replicate, I don't know, like make something Which, tactile and physical that's yeah. not there. That really yeah, exactly. is genius, man. That's yeah. The more that stuff is being done computer, the more there have to be these cues to give the live actors all their all the tools that they to would make normally it authentic. Had, yeah, if they had people that they were interacting with versus now they there's air that they're interacting with through so all these ways to sort of give the people the act the extras yeah. that they're you know to, the information. Yeah, it's funny yeah. funny game to figure out. Dude, I've been wondering for a while, and this is going to be a really stupid question. Um, but I, I think of it like NFL coaches. There are I think thirty NFL coaches. I maybe 30, 32 NBA coaches, 30 NFL coaches. How rare is it to actually be a Hollywood production? Designer? Designer. Oh, that is a good question. That is a very good question. I think, <laughs> I think there are probably, I'm going to guess now, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 of us. Um, the, 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 there's our guild, and um, – um, used to be that there were several guilds for different parts of the country and stuff. Now there's one one guild that overarchs everything. Um, and of course, there's production designers in England, production designers in other countries. Everywhere that a movie's made, there's a production designer. Um, but um, when I entered the union, <laughs> this is one of the ways I gauged it. When I entered my union, um, it was in 1980, and I was number 1163. So I figured... <laughs> <laughs> figured you know osmosis a lot of them died and a lot of new ones have been born since then or you know entered since then but i figure and a lot of those numbers cover people who are designing who are drafting sets who are art directors who aren't actually production designing but um especially with the sort of glut of new product nowadays uh there is so much of a demand for just endless tv shows to cover all these infinite channels on your tv set uh, okay. um, and streaming channels and you know, Peacock and Peacock Plus and, you know, Disney Plus and everything. There's just 
a gargantuan need. Um, so, uh, you know, us all the old timers, you know, sort of mourn the the loss of, of, of the proper tutoring system where people come up through the ranks and sort of learn the craft through, you know, wise old elders and sort of little by little grow into their job as a production designer. Now it feels like every, every, you know, third rate TV, you know, series on a streaming service needs a production designer, whether they're trained or not. So there is, you know, us, you know, woe is me elders saying, you know, sort of go back to school, Sonny, and learn the craft the way we learned it kind of thing. But, um, it does seem as though I I I I, get, I glean that there's probably between five hundred and a thousand production designers around um, between you know the coasts in in the United States um, and uh, you know new ones coming up every day. <laughs> gotcha. Can, I'm real curious, and especially for listeners, because who knows when you'll be able to speak to someone in your position again. What would be like, do you intern getting coffee and making a suggestion about uh, blank and then the steps of, I now am ready to apply to be art? Yes. Or can, can you just great, walk me through great. that? Yeah, that's a great question because um, countless production designers have all come up different ways and there's no necessarily the right way because right. you know if you, have, if you end up with a job as production designer, your <laughs> way was the right way. Um, but... Um, I'll pick a bunch of examples of friends of mine. So I came up through theater, which is one conventional way to come up through where, where you got the theater bug when you were in, you know, high school or before. And um, you, there's a, a number of good theater schools or even regular liberal arts colleges with theater departments and people sort of pick up stuff. And then there's graduate schools for theater where you learn the skills to design sets or design costumes and so forth. Um, and, in my case, design, be able to draft. And it was drafting that allowed me to get my career because I was good at drafting. And so even before I could design anything out in the world, I could be hired as draftsman, work my way up to drafting, ended up drafting for movies, ended up rising through the ranks from that. So, so um, from draftsman to art director on small movies to art director on big movies like Spider-Man and um, um, eventually saw that for me, if I didn't turn down art director jobs and sort of make the leap, I never would to production design. And when I started production designing, it was on $7 million movies, but lucky, lucky strike for me, my fourth production design movie was Juno. Um, so that sort of put me into a different category. Um, many others come from architecture a lot of production designers started in architecture huh. and um, found their way from architecture to, to movie drafting. And again, up through art direction to, to production design. Can I, at least, yeah. Oh no, I'm sorry. And I, God, I got to get better. I, I'm so sorry to cut you off mid thought. I'm just curious the difference between drafting and art director. Yeah. So good question. So um, in, in movies, the person who drafts the sets is called a set designer. Sounds nonsensical because he's not designing the sets, but he is drafting the sets to a designer's wishes. Um, so that's called the set designer. Um, the art director is in charge of the set designers. Um, the art director is the big wrangler of the department. He um, lays out the calendars. He lays out, he actually massages the budget more than production designer. Hmm. He, um, 
he figures out when everybody starts work and ends work um, over the course of the calendar of the show. Uh, he uh, uh, wrangles the construction department. Um, um, so when sets, when drawings are ready to go into the into the pipeline at the construction department so that the set gets built in time with enough time for the set decorator to put their dressing in it and the greensmen to put their trees in there or something. So he figures all that stuff out and he supervises it all. So he's basically carrying out the production designer's wishes in the set shop. Um, and many production designers are very savvy in the set shop and, and very dialed into the construction process in which molding is picked. I'm one of those because I came through that process. But a lot of production designers are not and really depend on their art director to, to pick the right hinges for the for the door to look like the right period and stuff. Oh, um, okay. So the art director is in charge of all the nuts and bolts, literally the nuts and bolts, but also <laughs> all, all of the metaphorical nuts I'm so glad you said it because I was about to be like, <laughs> literally, but I didn't yeah. want to cut you off again. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so that's his job. And sometimes it can be a very design heavy art directing job. When I was an art director to production designers, I would get my nose into their business all over the place. I would sketch sets that, that they would say, yeah, that's what it should look like. I would, I would suggest things. I would um, be very much an assistant designer to them as much as they welcome that. Um, but not all production designers to art directors work that way. Many times the art director is strictly the facilitator, the guy who Talk makes down. the trains run on time. Yeah. And, and um, it's a huge job, but it's different than the guys who are drafting at the computers now. It used to be drafting tables. Um, um, so there's the set designers drafting. There's the art director wrangling the whole thing. And the production designer who's, who's really in charge of the look in an overseeing sort of way. Gotcha. Okay, thank you. So then the drafter is the visual. Wait, and the there are great production designers who came out of decorating great production designers who come out of decorating and that makes a lot of sense to me because the decorator is really close to the script decorator is really interpreting who these people are um decorator may not know much about which molding is is the right one to use but brilliant production designers come from the end of um what tells the story through set deck um through which is all about color and texture and and period and everything so Great, great production designers have started as decorators. That's a very uh, familiar way to go. Um, and there are, I mean, our, uh, you were saying how people can start. There are, there are PA positions in the art department, production assistant positions in the art department, which just start like getting water and running errands and getting the, bringing the drawings to the set shop over the hill and stuff. Um, but for instance, our production assistant and the art department on the Muppets is now a big time art director wrangling this giant movie in Budapest. Uh, maybe she's in Ireland now. I'm not sure, but um, the, 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 there's a very, very uh, traceable route to start just to be a PA in the art department where you're not expected to have knowledge, but you're supposed to be a, be a person who works well with others and has good phone, you know, you know, demeanor and, and can pick up stuff. And Aaron Regal, the one from, from the Muppets, uh, picked it up like a sponge and was a great contributor. She wouldn't be the person who would suggest, don't you think you want to paint that blue instead of red? But um, she, would, she, she would learn the process and she would understand the hierarchy and 
who you go to on a soundstage or on a, on a location when you need to get something that you need um, amongst all the hundreds of people that are on a film crew. Those are really difficult lessons to learn. And a PA position is a great way to sort of learn. Ah, that's how, that's how, that's how one, you know, one connect, one department touches on another department touches on a third and here's who you go to for producer questions and here's who you go to for scheduling questions and stuff. Those are really hard things to learn from just being able to draft at the drafting table, but a PA interacts with all those folks and it can be a great way to sort of move up in the ranks. And Aaron's one example of a billion of many, many folks that started as PA. Gotcha. And so is that, do you just, would you just, uh, I don't even know how to ask it right. So you're a little person, I'm asking it for my daughter, but for any kid or any person who's right. listening, because me being from Southern Delaware, living in Southern Delaware. Oh, I the, thought you were near Pennsylvania. You had it. You definitely had that that Philadelphia O. <laughs> yeah, right. I know, right? Like the fur instead of four kind of a thing. Well, the water. Coach. Coach, right? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I'm two hours, two hours south of Philly, right? Yeah, so it's the same region. Course. But like, it it's so weird to try to picture. Well, okay, now I want to be a PA. Do I yeah. Google PA applications? Do you have to like oh, move to Hollywood? Do you have to have an uncle that is like, hey, come here and make $15 an hour or just show up for five weeks and we'll give you a security clearance? I know that is a really good question. I'm trying to think of how the folks Got started it. before. I mean, yeah, I think that's the thing is to talk to a PA. That's a good idea. So you um, just start following them on social media, hitting them with mess messages to be like, "Hey, I'm interested in this career." That might be it. I'll I mean, honestly, there. Are, I mean, every every few months or so, I get a an email out of the blue from um, a, a college grad who's about to go out into the business and and wants to sort of um, have just have a conversation or have a leg up or you know just have a, have an email exchange and find out what they might do. And depending on what their interest is, we do send them to, I mean, I'll, I'll put somebody in touch with an art department coordinator. Gosh. Coordinators are the people who are the bosses of the PAs who, who, who are basically pushing the, 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 within the art department itself, the coordinator is, is, is making the trains run within the art department. Um, and so they have PAs, APA or two PAs or more that, that are running errands and being gophers and, and, and facilitating. Um, and so often I'll, I'll put somebody in touch with an uh, art department coordinator friend of mine who would then, you know, at least they may not have a job, but at least tell them if somebody they know has a job that's looking for somebody. Um, but it is, it is, it is, it's, um, it's a process that would be a long-term thing. In other words, you, 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 you can't sort of graduate and hope that you're going to have a job within a week of, of, of setting out an email. Cause it's just not, it yes. is hard. And, and also <clears throat> PAs are not a union position, but most of the other positions I mentioned are union positions um, for the movies I work on. There's a whole host of, of work that is non-union um, uh, that's shrinking, um, which from my standpoint is a good thing because unions give health benefits, unions protect their workers on, you know, from unfair you know, rates of pay and all that stuff, unfair working conditions, uh, days that are too long for what people should be able to have to do. Um, so I'm definitely a pro-union guy. 
I've been in a union for 31 years, but um, <clears throat> getting into a union for those union positions is very tricky. I know even to this day, uh, there, there, <clears throat> one, one good thing about our union is it's, it's, uh, you can take a test, um, which shows that you can draft and stuff. And, um, for the people who are coming from architecture or something, you can take a test and, uh, if you, you there's a very high entrance fee, but you pay the entrance fee, it could be over a matter of, of months or something, uh, and you're in, you're in the union and you can work on union jobs. Uh, for somebody like a PA, the PA positions are not union, so anybody can be a PA. And uh, it, then it's a question of being able to sort of have the skill to enter the union or to be on a non-union show that goes union. But of course you could never plan Gotcha. what show to be on that's going to go union. I was lucky. Um, I was on a show uh, uh, that was supposed to be shot in New York. And at the time, the New York union was separate from LA. Um, and you still live in New York. Uh, the show was supposed to shoot in New York. Um, and the, uh, it was 1991. And the, the uh, studios decided to lock out the New York uh, unions um, because of negotiations for new contracts and rates and stuff. And so for a year or more, no union jobs came to New York City. And if you, had, you wanted to work, you had to go out of New York City to do it. Um, and that was right when this movie happened. And so brilliantly, they decided to shoot this movie that all takes place in Manhattan and some Cuba uh, and shoot it in L.A. on sound stages and in back lots. Uh, and bless their hearts, they brought me out with a production designer who was a great friend of mine, Stuart Wurzel, who's a New York production designer. And they put us up in hotels and they paid my way into the West Coast version of my union. Um, I was in the East Coast union, but not the West Coast union at the time. Oh, uh, so it's not a national union. It is now. Oh, okay. It is now. It wasn't. Uh, okay. Art Directors Guild is, is now a national thing, but at the 30 years ago, it was two separate, two separate unions. Um, so oh, I got lucky. A bunch of people got lucky. Many, many people went through working in non-union jobs um, that went union, and suddenly they had a union card. Um, and it's not just for the for the you know production designer and the set de set designer and stuff. The dresser, the set decorator, and all of the people into them are all in a different union, but a union nonetheless. And it's it's pretty strict. You can't just sort of show up uh, on a as a set dresser. Um, on on virtually any TV show or movie, except for the non-union ones, um, and uh, most people with long-term careers end up obviously getting being wanting to get into a union show situation because then your health coverage is 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 chief among the advantages. Your health okay. coverage. Is that, that's what I was wondering because basically, and again, that's another thing that's so hard for me, and I would imagine a lot of people who aren't in this world of yours to, to yeah. understand is like the, you're basically independent contractors, right? Uh, I'm independent. Yes, actually I'm, I'm now an S corp. I'm proud to say um, I'm a, I'm a corporation, but oh, um, <laughs> congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> like three years, uh, three years ago, uh, new, new situation, but most production designers are actually uh, corporate independent corporations. Um, but most everybody else are employers, employees, um, and um, we're 
in a sense, we're employee. Disney hires you, or you know, Lionsgate hires you, or Paramount hires you, but um, you're paid by a payroll company called Entertainment Partners. And weirdly, as a purpose of, of employment, everything, your employer of record is the payroll company. I don't know why. Huh. So everybody's an employer of entertainment partners um, or casting crew. There are other, other, you know, these payroll companies. But um, uh, basically, you're an independent contractor. Yeah, nobody is a salaried employee of Disney um, except the folks at the front offices of the Disney offices. Yeah, right. Uh, the you're executives. You are – your your employer is actually the payroll company, and that's um, why the benefits matter so much because you don't have steady pay. The pay is by the gig, right. or by the job, it's right? Definitely by the gig, and and so uh, when you're on the job, your um, the movie pays you. Uh, they take out all the taxes and so forth, and they also pay into your social security. Not you know you, they pay into all the social security accounts and stuff that. Um, employer is supposed to pay into. So um, uh, with the union, um, you you accrue hours and you accrue um, you know all your all your all your jobs become you know your pension when you retire um, that the union does, and the union is also paying um, it's your health benefits. So I don't I haven't paid a single dime for my health benefits. For all these years I've been in the union, there's no there's no monthly payment or anything. Um, that's what the union does. That's the deal. They they cover your health health benefits, which is like gargantuan. I mean, you know, as a yeah. father of a family. So I'm I'm you don't know this about me. I'm a school teacher. So as a state employee in Delaware, it's one of those uh -huh. um, it, it, exceptional benefits where the copays are few and far between. Uh -huh. It gets negotiated from a local standpoint where. Right. Um, whatever my district pays the majority of health, medical, dental, I, oh, that's brilliant. so our so local, that... our local tax school system, our local tax funds are enough where that's a perk where it makes people want to apply and get into this school district versus others. In the place. That's great. That's yeah. really smart. That seems absolutely the thing that every school system should be about that's that's brilliant yeah because i mean teachers don't get paid a ton anyway so if you could at I least know. just cover all their benefits it would make it a more competitive job environment hopefully you would get more competent harder working people because right. it's elusive right it's not yeah, exactly. anybody well, can for, get this for you so for the summer months when you're not working your your pay is sort of figured out over a whole 12 month situation yeah. it used to be it's funny apparently back in the day you used to be able to be a 10 month or a 12 month so you wouldn't uh, get paychecks in the summer but you would get larger ones while you were yeah. teaching the union right. stopped that because i guess too many people couldn't budget and figure out <laughs> how to how to like you know set a little bit apart um so now yeah, yeah that, it's it's that teachers were okay at it and everybody yeah, else sucked. exactly <laughs> freaking english teachers like i am just want, just drinking all day writing their thoughts right. down it was over <laughs> Um, Other kids dying of not having nutrition. Yes. Um, well, it's similar to us in the, in the sense that obviously I don't get any benefit when I'm not working. I, I go on unemployment just like everybody. Um, but it is true that even for the most successful of us, there is an assumption that a certain chunk of the of every year, every single year is going to be unemployed. And so um, um, obviously we get 
we get paid well compared to the world at large. We get paid really, really well, and nobody, nobody, um, sort of begrudge. Uh, nobody, nobody takes that for granted. We know that this is a really well-paid sort of gig, um, but it is true that we never know how long we'll be on unemployment. Um, and coincidentally, the higher you rise up, um, uh, the more uncertain your 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 years employment is. Um, for a set designer or for uh, an assistant art director or a, a PA or something, they can work every month of the year because there is enough work to push neck, one next to the other next to the other to keep an entire work uh, load employed. But for production designers, um, there's, you know, a, a normal movie is about six to eight months long of work. And uh, then there's this sort of... <laughs> There's this netherworld where it could be that there's a job that happens right after. It could be that a script comes in your in your lap and the director loves your 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 pitch and you're immediately on to another job. And that happened recently, just once. I was on Chippendale and literally had to leave the day before the last shooting day because the job that I was moving on to, which was that are you there, goddess be Margaret? Um, happened so one hard upon the other. And that was very unusual almost always there is three or four months maybe of unemployment and every every year I work and um I sort of just grow to accept it I I tell people this and they sort of look at me like how on earth you you know dude it's got to be great like you have to recharge after that right like you have to and yes and there's a there's a you were you were mentioning on your email about about my our world traveling um there has always been in my head the idea that whatever job I'm on, I know I'm going to be out of work for at least a month following that job. And therefore, every single job I'm on, uh, my husband and I try to plan a great trip somewhere yeah. as our reward <laughs> for the hard work we did on the job. Absolutely. Which and just so, to, just to pause you, like it almost yeah. is like a guilty thing that Americans look at this vacation and time off. And the more I just read on the internet and the more I hear about European cultures and how they embrace leisure and experience and time off, like yeah. it absolutely should be the thing, man. You've put in all this work, you've earned the right to just go, just be. Well, that's, and, and, you know, I am in a visual medium and to sort of go and travel the great capitals of Europe or India or China or wherever we're going, it's just only going to, you know, have it's my research. My, it's my, a tax exactly. deduction. <laughs> like it was a, I, mean, I finally gave up doing this tax deduction. That seemed unfair somehow, but as a, as a sort of a visual stimulus and, and a way to say, here's an example. Here's a great example. Drag me to hell was the, the uh, Sam Raimi movie that I think I mentioned had this elaborate two story seance room that was an amalgam of all these uh, uh, Eastern sort of uh, and European uh, architectures mixed together. Um, my pitch when I went in and sat with Sam Raimi um, was I brought with me uh, a series of four by six prints. This is back when it was still one hour photo to develop your prints from your vacation <laughs> trips. Um, uh, this these couple of palaces that we had seen in Istanbul and Istanbul is an amazing city for many reasons um chief amongst which it is an overlap of uh Asia and Europe um it's the only city in the world that has that overlaps two continents and uh it is a mingling of Arabic and Moorish 
and Eastern India, even architectural uh, modes with Versailles and and the great palaces of, of, of Western Europe, all in one place and many times all in one building. So um, we had seen these amazing um, palaces, all of them slightly run down, all of them kind of full of ghosts already. Uh, and uh, one of them, Bailerbai, which is on the Asian coast of um, Istanbul, um, we, we come into, and it was this riot of blue and gold and gilt. And um, there were these glass spindles as the railings on the thing. It was just so many choices that we had never seen before. I, my eyes just boggled when I was there, took a ton of pictures. And so I get the script and I'm like, wait, I think I know what this seance room that's supposed to be a cross currents of, of Eastern and Western, you know, sort of world of convergences uh, is supposed to yeah, be yeah, yeah, yeah. and i brought in these photos uh, that we had shot of byler by and laid them out in front of sam Raimi and said okay here's here's a pitch here's what this room could be and it could be that the woman the character uh, whose room it is uh wasn't really established what what race she was or what ethnic group or anything what her history was so i said what if she is on this overlap from eastern and western religions and what if she has um uh, Cyrillic, which was the sort of Romanian, um, the, the Russian language, uh, running around the the tops of this this room, in, um, speaking um, biblical things, but biblical things transmuted to Eastern Orthodox liturgy, and and I sort of leveled all these ideas at Sam, uh, and he said, "Do it." <laughs> Actually, no, this was before he said, "Do it." He said, "You got the." He eventually said you've got the job. And I think it was because there was this passionate response from something I had just seen out in the world that felt like a really good, you know, uh, talking point for this movie. Um, Dude, so, your memory and your passion, not, not to cut you off, but to compliment you. I feel like every time I speak, I'm cutting you off, but like uh, your passion is so enthusiastic for these details, man. The, the, even the details you're remembering from Juno, which was what, 2006 you'd said? Yeah, yeah. Like the fact that you have these clearly means you connect on such an intimate level with what you yeah. do. Well, it's true. I mean, you gotta, I mean, this is true of anybody's job, but you have to like have a passion for what you're doing. But more than that, you have to like, look forward to going to work every day. You have to like have something to get excited to get up and go, I can't wait to treat the kids in my class to this new chapter we're going to yeah. get into or whatever it is. I can't wait to see the light bulb go on over that kid's, you know, head when, when they get, get what I'm conveying. And so same for me is like, um, the, the, the having something that vibrates, you know, inside and it's like i can't wait to share this with the director i can't wait to sort of show this picture to the dp and see if he likes it um yeah that's that's like a, a byline for success for any job you're in is is um um yeah having a passion for it and then anything that has an emotional resonance with you you're going to remember yeah that's it if it's emotional it's going to stay with you forever and and every i mean every one of our trips that, that Paul and I take um, to foreign countries, even the terrible trips are the ones where <laughs> the luggage got lost and we got sick for three days as it happened in Marrakesh. Um, you remember details because it's an emotionally resonant thing. And, you know, someday somebody's going to 
give me a script where, you know, there's a piece of a Marrakesh Riyadh, an old inn in Marrakesh that they require. And it's like, I have the, just the thing to show you. I know just how this should feel. Um, and, and, and off you go and you're running. Yeah. You got to feel that passion just to get up in the morning and do the work. The hours are too long. The job is, is, is draining, um, too draining at times. And so if you don't have that passion, you, 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 you have a hope of getting through a week of this. I was wondering that when you had said with union and I really wanted to know just a little bit about like, is there even a typical work week or are you like the doctor on call for (laughs) 60 days where you can't even get through the night because shit's always coming up? Yeah. Fortunately, those nightmarish scenarios I haven't had to do in a really long time. The low budget movies, the ones uh, like Juno, but, but there are a million of them out there um, that 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 sort of are scouting the rules, uh, kind of getting everybody to just sort of jump in like a summer camp, and every hour of your of your existence is devoted to the indie project um, that the director was passionate about. That's a nightmare scenario. And fortunately, in a long time, I haven't had that situation. Um, when you're out of town, and a lot of work is out of town, they've got you for longer. Just by vent of you don't have a family there, you don't have kids there, you don't have pets there. So you're, you're, you are a little bit more available, but, um, on the general rule, I work a five day week and, um, sometimes the shooting crew works at different five days than I do. Sometimes I am, I mean, when I get, when I work a six day week, I get paid for a six day, but, um, the, the general rule is, um, it's usually about a 12 hour day. Um, and uh, a lot of times it'll go longer and sometimes it'll go shorter. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's generally 12, 13 hours, depending um, uh, on a five-day week. But generally... Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm, then, I'm hearing some giggles in the background. So I'm feeling like yeah. you may be well, underselling. I'm trying to... So I, I, it's true <laughs> that when you're out of town, the day gets longer. Because even if you get home to your apartment or wherever they yeah. put you up, you're still doing emails for another hour to sort of send the information out to whoever needs it. But um, it, it, it has its ebbs and flows. And um, there are points where all of us in the art department can seize the moment when, oh my gosh, everything we had to figure out got done by 3.30. We're all going home right now. We don't care because we know that there's going to be another day that'll be a 16-hour day that'll, that'll come back to bite us in the ass. So, so there's definitely a thing of, in the business, we know how bad it can get, and and we sort of all work to kind of keep everybody on a reasonable basis. And the unions are very involved in that. Not for me, <laughs> I'm a union position, but I'm not an hourly position. Uh, the production designer could work infinite hours, and and there wouldn't be a repercussion with the producers. But that's not true for the art director, the set designers, the graphic designer, the production coordinator. Oh, production coordinator could work in infinite hours, but most of those positions are very heavily regulated, um, and they've all been budgeted with the producers on the show. So you start you start keeping your set designers longer than was originally budgeted, and you hear about it from the producers who haven't budgeted that much in the payroll, and you have to shorten the, the hours the next week or the, whatever it is. Gotcha. Uh, so so fortunately for everybody up and down the pipeline. Thank God, there's really strict strictures about that now. Um, that keep keep 
keep most of the folks in the art department from being, um, you know, sort of taken advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. The production designer is not in that category. He doesn't have an hourly. So. Well, that's uh, leadership. I mean, in in schools, it would be similar to like a superintendent or a building principal where there's a reason you're in charge, man. Like you get the perks of being in charge, but you also get the curses of being in charge. And that's where delegating is a really good science right. to learn. That's where that's where you figure out when your art director can can yeah, you know open a set. See that. I'm sorry, but that's like a whole nother thing, and it's amazing, Steve. Like you were like, yeah, maybe we'll do an hour. I don't know if it'll be that interesting. And I'm like, I think we, have, we should wrap up soon. Yeah, I know. I know. My voice is getting scratchy, and your listeners will start to say, "I can't understand what he's saying." <laughs> All right, so. I was going to get into management style, but let's end on this, Steve, because you said this very earlier and I thought it was interesting. On the movie, um, you were a production designer for Thank You for Smoking, right? Yeah, yeah my you, first movie with Jason. And you thought that you weren't going to get a second. Ah, uh, <laughs> So I'm so true. curious, like what were the regrets? What did you look back at? What did you hear? Just tell me oh. about that. Well, um, in, in fairness to Jason, it was Jason's first movie also. And I think Jason will, com- will uh, uh, attest to this. He was a miserable fuck on that movie. And <laughs> um, not every day, but enough days that I thought. And, and it seemed as though um, not, not only Jason, but nobody seemed to be looking at the tough, the tough job that the art department was doing and commanding anybody on it. Um, not the producers, not the DP, not anybody who was seeing our work. It was just taken for granted, and it seemed as though um, we were only hearing about the the bitching when something didn't come the way they thought it should, uh, and we weren't getting anything like, wow, you guys pulled an incredible magic trick out of this nothing budget that we gave you. Uh, so it wasn't that I was signing myself off from ever designing any movie, but I didn't think I'd ever work with Jason or the or the producers on that movie again. Um, it turned out not to be the case. I obviously, um, Jason, uh, loved my work. Uh, he wasn't vocal about it the first time and he, he, he changed actually. He actually grew up. Um, he was a kid when he started the first movie. Uh, and, um, I mean, uh, the last movie we did together was in 2018, which was the front runner, unfortunately a flop. It was Hugh Jackman, coincidentally, uh, as, uh, the politician Gary Hart. Uh, in 1987, and sort of looking at uh, his his fall from the front runner status in that election to uh, being sort of a scandal. Um, but uh, anyway, so we had a spread of uh, math, um, uh, something like 13 or 14 years of five movies, which is a really long, sustained relationship um, in this business. That's sort of amazing that one director and one production designer would work together over Is and over it? again for five movies. So like you think of, um, and again, I'm, I'm completely ignorant to the industry, but like Scorsese and oh, yeah. De Niro He's, or something, where like a director right. finds some actors. That doesn't typically happen with like a director and a set designer or a production. Yeah, director designer. yeah it does happen. Um, a lot of things, a lot of things shift uh, from time to time. Um, but uh, yes, you want that, but you want that. And it happens all the time. But you want it um, with somebody who has a sensibility just like yours. Um, Jason, his first person will tell you, he the last thing he's ever going to direct is a movie musical. 
a period movie musical is just like anathema to everything he stands for. So uh, what I what I needed and I never quite did, but I I still hope to do. There's still time. Is link up with somebody who for whom that is the be all and end all of movie oh, directing. Sure. Um, so 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 uh, uh, um, there's there's a lot of directors out there. There's more directors out there than production designers. Um, and uh, yes, there there are. Um, there are those golden golden cherries that every production designer wants to do, but um, yeah, your your safest thing is to link up with a director who works all the time, whose aesthetic matches yours exactly. Um, I've done a lot of movies with directors who match mine, but they're usually starting out directors, and then their next movie isn't necessarily <laughs> uh, the one that that I'm available for. Um, but uh, you know. There's still plenty of time for that to happen. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it's interesting because the communication and the detail, I would think if you have the relationship, would just you you'd be supercharged. Yeah. It'd be so much no, more efficient. Yeah. You know, having that relationship to actually get exactly. things done. Exactly. Yep. Right. Well, Steve, man, you are so gracious to come on. I, I honestly can't believe when I texted you, I felt like an ass. Cause I'm like, I emailed this guy. Am I being super pushy texting? But I thought it might be like a fishy scheme thing where I was like, maybe he won't take it serious. So I didn't think it was that. Although frankly, there was, I think I got, I got asked to do a podcast a year or so ago by somebody who turned out to be like a 12 year old kid, which I didn't do. And so I had to kind of at least bet that it wasn't going to be that situation again. Dude, I'm, I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad you let um, people get to know more about you and just get to know more about your world, man. Thank you so much. I can't believe that um, I was able to chat with you for this long. I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful. Yeah, this was great fun. I love it. Thanks so much, man. Can't wait to hear what this sounds like on the, on the air. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, enjoy your night and enjoy your time off. Take care, man. Take care. Bye. Thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Listeners, search him up. It's Andre Psyche, P-S-Y-C-H-E, on social media. Give my man a follow, just for the fuck of it. Thanks to BetterHelp for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about by going to betterhelp.com slash getting, the number two, no, the letter U. And you, dear listeners, are going to get 10% off your first month. Remember, the link you're looking for is in the description. Thanks to Shady Rays for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Listeners, the promo code GETTING will get you 25% off your purchase at ShadyRays.com. That's promo code GETTING, G-E-T-T-I-N-G. And if you just want to give us some straight cash money, shout out Randy Moss, you can go to our Patreon and support the pod for as little as $2 a month if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the Getting to Know You pod on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. If you have not already, please friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. Later.